0: This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital-setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to govx.com, G-O-V-X dot com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products, and I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession, and 5.11 were founded on clothing, the tactical athletes, so they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 5.11 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other the great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well. Their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 5.11, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 388 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Josh Stewart-Shaw. Now, I met Josh at O2X a couple of years ago when he was teaching down in South Florida. And uh, at the time, he had transitioned out of the Army where he was a Green Beret. And since then, has actually entered Boston Fire Department. So we waited till he was off probation before we were able to sit down and talk. So Josh's story is incredible. His journey through the military, then transitioning out after injury, the Thor 3 program, finding O2X, and now his experience in the fire service, there are so many takeaways. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library that I add to every single week with more and more of these great people. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Josh Stewart Shaw. Enjoy. So Josh, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on James, I appreciate it. So where are we finding you on planet Earth? I'm currently in Boston, Massachusetts, God's country. <laughs> All right, so I'd love to start at the very beginning. So where were you born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, which is why I came back. You know, family is still here. I came up... my you know, my, my family dynamic was, uh, we we're very lucky. Um, you know, I'd love to tell you that I had some sort of, you know, trials and tribulations that I had to overcome to, you know, get to where I was today, but that really isn't the case. Um, you know, I came from a two parent household and I've got two sisters, Katie and Hannah. Um, I'm the oldest and Katie is about three years younger than me and my youngest sister, Hannah, is six years younger and she is actually adopted from Vietnam. So I, um, you know, part of, you know as far as like the, core nuclear family, you know, not something, not something that we, uh, you know, had any unique circumstances to aside from my sister being adopted, but we never noticed that, honestly, aside from the fact that uh, you know, she had, we didn't look like twins, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and why did
0: your parents choose Vietnam specifically?
1: You know, that's a good question. I don't know for sure. Um, I do know, you know, my father was in the military in Vietnam as a medical service officer. Um, they've never said that that was the direct reason for choosing Vietnam as a country um, to adopt from. But it wouldn't shock me if just by nature of, you know, my parents and who they are, that was the place that they thought, you know, they could make the most um, they had the most relatable uh, experiences to at the time. I
0: Love it. Absolutely love it. So you mentioned your dad was in the military. So was he a big uh, influence on you joining yourself? You know, um,
1: not really. Almost the opposite, in fact. So my father was a medical service officer and, you know, he went to Syracuse University, Um, for his undergrad and did ROTC there. And that was, you know, during, you know, the start up to Vietnam. And, you know, my father, both my parents are very big into service and, you know, service and what that looks like can be defined in a lot of ways. And at the time, the military was the thing. But I think as the war went on, you know, he realized that, you know, what the war represented may not have been something he fully supported, but, you know, he did want to serve. So he was a med service officer and worked in Austin, Texas, you know, at our Fort Sam working in the burn unit and saw a lot of pretty terrible things. Uh, He never deployed overseas, but he was, you know, saw kind of the, um, the results of the war. And so he always told me that if I wanted to serve, I could, you know, he supported it and that everybody should have some sense of service. But I wouldn't say he exactly pushed me in that direction, you know, because he saw what war could do to people
0: yeah now what was it you know you say he saw so you know we i'm becoming more uh, aware now of that particular generation really i mean for lack of a better word getting completely screwed by our country when they came home so these men and women were scooped up they were told to go over there a lot of them you know they did what what they were asked and then they came back and they were you know spat on and shamed and called baby killers and all these things um, you know, what did he see as far as the, the burn treatment back then and, and also the mental health of some of these returning vets?
1: Yeah, I think so for him, you know, a lot of times when we relate to the like mental traumas, we think of the guys who actually went through, which that's all the conversation you and I can have, but just the uh, caregiver trauma, you know? Um, so having these guys come back, my father didn't experience the combat, but he saw the results of that. And so see what those guys went through in the burn unit obviously had a lot of impact on him as far as, you know, what, what did to people. And from what I understand, you know, he doesn't talk a lot about that experience, but, you know, the treatment at the time was the best they could give him, you know, just keep it damp, help them heal. But what those guys had after was pretty null and void from what I understand. You know, I don't think there was a lot of, support for the soldiers after uh in marines and sailors and guys after they were released from the military
0: yeah i think that's a very important thing and it'd be interesting to get your perspective you know service in the military versus service in the fire service which you're doing now but yeah i mean you know you look at the world war ii generation with the ticker tape parades and all these you know welcome home element i mean the the vietnam era was was a was a pretty dark chapter in you know in our nation's history
1: it was, and I mean, I think we're really trying to make up for that now. I know, uh, you know, it's probably further far, down the conversation, but when I was stationed in Bragg, my wife and I, we used in uh, Fort Bragg. Did a uh, Fayetteville, with the city of which Fort Bragg is located, used to do a, a welcome home weekend for the uh, four uh, Vietnam vets, and that was pretty cool because those guys never got that. So to kind of say, hey, we appreciate your service, you know, thirty, forty years later, uh, went a long way for those guys.
0: Absolutely, I just listened to a great conversation between Mike Glover and Andy Stumpf, and. Um, they were both saying that I guess now it's materializing with the, uh, the 22, you know, suicides a day that actually they're not specifying the age brackets in this. And, and a lot of them are the Vietnam vets that are transitioning out of whatever civilian profession they found themselves in. And then when they retire, I think is, you know, that loneliness and that lack of support and tribe kicks in. And, and that's the generation that we're actually losing a lot now.
1: Yeah and I mean that's the thing those guys weren't allowed to talk about it we you know we in the OEF OIF world we had to talk about it like you had to go see the psych every time something happened uh, the, you know whether it was a killed in action or or anything like they're like hey go see combat drama combat stress and I know I Adam LaRue yeah one of the founders of O2X and talked to you about that too for his guys
0: yeah no exactly all right well then back to your you know your early life what about athletics were you a sportsman back then
1: I was, yeah. So I grew up um, playing soccer. I uh, played soccer in high school pretty aggressively. Um, you know, one of those guys I always thought I was going to go pro. Um, and then I focused on skiing, and obviously I joined the military. So it was not too successful after college with either of those.
0: <laughs> well, World War Two, you would have been a, a gem, you know, in the, in the in the Nordic setting if you were a skier.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I would have gone to the tenth mountain division.
0: Yeah, and Afghanistan, maybe not so much. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. So no, sports were a big part of my life. Um, you know, I was always good enough to, you know, play on the varsity. You know, I was a two-year, you know, two-year captain. I made the all-star teams. But once I went to college, I got recruited by a lot of Division one schools. Uh, but it turns out, in order to play college soccer at a high level, you also have to be able to academically get accepted into those things. I didn't realize that they went hand in hand at the time.
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, then walk me through your. Uh you're, well, actually, before I get to that, so so you, obviously we know that you ended up in the military at that school age. Was was that your career goal, or did you have another aspiration?
1: Uh, no, my aspiration um, through high school was to do anything that was fun. You know, I didn't really have any focus, and I guess that's where I should probably go back and answer. You know, your initial question about my folks and like the dynamic I had because that really shaped how I ended up in Norwich specifically. Um, because I had no real aim. Like high school, my focus in life was just having a good time. Um, and my academics reflected that. I was the classic case of, we'll call it wasted potential, you know. Um, my test scores were always good, but I loved school so much that I spent every single summer in summer school. And that's a true story. I never had a summer off. <laughs> so um, yeah, because both of my parents, you know, they were fairly academically, um, you know, academically sound. You know, they both went on to uh, pretty, pretty good careers. My father, um, he was in public health. Actually started after his time in the military, he became a nurse and worked in the prison wards as a nurse and then went into public health and policy. We worked in workman's comp and helping um, kind of shape policies and processes. And then my mother was a nurse practitioner and she focused on cardiology uh, after both her parents passed away from heart disease. And, you know, her big thing is income inequality um, in healthcare. She's one of the founders of the Pine Street Inn. Um, You know, she worked for SEED Global, which is the Peace Corps' version of, uh, you know, which is the health, you know, health providing portion of the Peace Corps. So she spends a lot of time in Africa. But uh, the reason I say that is like, so my parents were very focused on, you know, trying to be successful in school, but also finding careers that you could get back in, you know, uh, very philanthropic people. And every time they talk to me about trying to perform in school, I just was not interested. I'm going to play soccer. I'm going to party with my friends. I'm going to chase girls, um, sometimes in the opposite order, of course. <laughs> but so as I was looking at colleges, I was having a lot of time sitting down with coaches. They wanted to recruit me to you know some very prominent schools, but I just didn't have the grades to get in. And so it was sort of one, I think the low point in my, my academic and soccer sports life was when I got a rejection letter saying I should apply to a community college from what I thought at the time was a community college that's sort of I realized I had some issues <laughs> on my future plans of being an all-star athlete. Um, so my parents are the ones who, my father, not my mom, she was not too happy with this, but my dad said I should look at a military college because if I was going to join the military, he wanted me to you know go to school first and you know honestly go in as an officer just because you know I always the one thing that I'd like to think I did on and off the field is you know, be a leader amongst my friends. He was like, hey, take that skill set, one of the few that you seem to have in school. And you know, bring it to whatever career you choose.
0: Beautiful. So is that the route that you took then?
1: It was. It was. I would love to say it's because of uh, some sense of higher calling, but uh, the reality is, at the time, uh, it was the only place that I was accepted to, and it was the only place that I had a chance to play soccer.
0: Brilliant. So, so going through the um, the academic route into the military, you know, what was your um, experience of that?
1: So. I think the big thing for me was that I the school I went to wasn't a normal college. I went to Norwich University, which is a very small military college. And unlike West Point or Annapolis or the Air Force Academy, not only is it a military college where you have no life, but you actually have to pay for it. It's a private school. So you're actually paying to not have a good college experience, or a different college experience, I should say, you know, not the standard fund. Um, so my experience was one where when I got there, yeah, I was like, well, I'm paying to be here and I'm paying to be hazed, so I should probably try to be successful. And I still wasn't sure that I wanted to do the military at that point. Um, you know, I had this couple of people in my life, uh, my Uncle Hank specifically was a Navy captain who had really helped me look at the military as a career. Um, and once I got to Norwich is where I focused down that and then said, hey, you know what, maybe this is something I want to do in my life. And I actually initially, I'll never admit it to the guys that know 2X since they're all SEALs, but I initially signed on for the Navy and, uh, Luckily, that didn't work out for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how did that not work out?
1: So when I showed up, I guess one of the things that happened. My gosh, my end of my senior year of high school, uh, I was playing a. Uh, it wasn't even a club game. It was like a record, like a. It was like a community team game, um, and you know, this is one of those moments I'm not proud of, but you learn a lot of life lessons with it. Uh, you know, we were killing some team. It was like 18 to nothing. I was a goalkeeper. You know, we're just having fun. we, just, we all graduating. It was just a great time to be alive. You know, 18-year-old kids with the world. The world is our oyster. And I decided as a goalkeeper that it I was my turn to score a goal. And uh, needless to say, the other team didn't take too kindly on that. As I was dribbling up, a kid uh, slide tackled me and I uh, shattered my, my uh, tib fib. And so I spent that summer recovering, you know, to make sure I got healthy enough to get in, you know, to go through you Norwich's cadet program. But uh, obviously, my soccer career didn't work out for me. So I spent a lot of time trying to focus on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, then lead me through your career in the Army then.
1: Yeah. So I did my four years at Norwich University. Um, once I did oh, – so I guess I forgot to answer your actual question, though, as far as – uh, when I went to the Navy ROTC program at Norwich, I had a plan to try and do the SEAL program. So they had this thing called mini-BUDS. And I started that program, and they were actually looking at handing out scholarships. So I got through the mini buds program, and that's where they said, oh, by the way, uh, you are medically disqualified from joining the Navy because of this injury, which would have been great had they told me that before I tortured myself. I was going to
0: say, <laughs> <laughs> congratulations, really you, you passed, and you don't qualify.
1: <laughs> yeah, carry on. So as any good uh, young man who's ever tried to join and been rejected from the military would tell you, I got up, walked down the hallway to Army ROTC, and the Army said, you know what, We're not only will to take you, but we'll pay you to be here. Here's a scholarship. So, uh, lucky for me, that worked out pretty well. Um, you know, I got a guy, I had some very good mentors while I was at Norwich. You know, one of them was a uh, Mass Sergeant, Shane Bailey, who uh, retired since then, but he was an old fifth group guy. And he really showed me kind of like what a good leader in the Army was, you know, talked to us about, hey, even if you don't go to SF, like here's some of the career tracks you can take. And I decided from, uh, from that point on that this was something I wanted to do. So when we branched, I was lucky enough to branch infantry and became an infantry officer, went to ranger school, and from there was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, where I reported to in, I guess it was early or mid-2008. And uh, did my time as a platoon leader in an airborne infantry platoon at the 82nd of Bragg. And we deployed to western Iraq uh, to Anbar uh, specifically gosh I guess it was summer of 2009 and did about 12 or 13 months over there and at that time my plan was to actually get out of the army um, you know I, I, I knew I wanted to do the army I honestly I didn't have a lot of other options at the time and my wife to be my fiance at the time we had talked about you know what we wanted for life and the original plan was to do my four years and come back to Boston and figure it out from there. And so I called her. I guess it was right around Christmas of 2009, while I was in Iraq. I said, "Hey, babe, you know my four years are about to, you know, my, I'm about to my four years will be up right as we're coming back and transitioning. You know, um, what, you know, what's our plan?" And I had actually gotten ready to drop my get out of the army paperwork because you have to do it about a year out, and I was putting that together. And she said, "What's our plan? What do you mean? What's our plan?" She says, "Well, what's your plan? If you're getting out of the army, like we're getting married next year, what are we going to do?" So, well, we're going to we're going to get out of the army. We're going to come back to Boston, and we'll figure it out. And her exact words were, "I love you, but there's no way I'm marrying a man whose plan is to come back to Boston around to all his old friends and uh, live in his parents' house and go get drunk in the same parking lots." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, the the thing about Fort Bragg, which is where that we've been for a while, is that it's basically the center of Army uh, Special Operations universe. You know, you see uh, specifically Army Special Forces, Army Special Forces, which is the Green Berets. So you see those guys around all the time. So I had a lot of exposure to those guys. And I had talked about becoming a Green Beret, but it's always like, oh, if I was staying in, I would do this, you know, not very serious conversation. And uh, so on that same phone call, I said, listen, you've talked a lot about becoming a Green Beret, you know, why don't we stay in the Army a little bit longer, you know, you try out for this thing, so you'll never ask yourself if you, you know, could wish you could have, would have, should have type of thing. And she's like, "We'll start a life in North Carolina together." Um, yeah, I think her exact words were also like, "I love you, but I don't need you around. I want you around, but I don't need you around." You know. So that's his history. Came back. We had to bring it to my mother that I was not getting out of the army. My mother couldn't understand why uh, my wife was moving down to North Carolina instead of me moving back. But I went to selection. Got selected October of 2010, and uh, got married in December of 2010. Started the uh, Special Forces Qualification Course. Had a heck of an experience there. Um, actually had a few hiccups, which probably made me a better leader and officer. And uh, earned my Green Beret. I want to say in March or April of 2013, and uh, that's sort when of kicked off my my Special Forces career.
0: Beautiful. Well, going back <clears throat> to, you know, when you were first a platoon leader coming through, again, the academic route. Um, did you have any issues being a young officer that hadn't, you know, worked their way through the ranks?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, any lieutenant who says they walked in and gets it right the first time is lying themselves. You know, um, the thing about being a lieutenant is that we are told. From our time, wherever you commission through, whether it's, you know, ROTC, whether it's one of the service academies, whether it's OCS, that you are inherently qualified to lead a platoon. And I would say that we are qualified to learn to lead a platoon through on-the-job training when we get there. But that when we show up, you know, the best thing to do is don't confuse your authority with your ability, if that makes sense. You know, and I I learned that a lot the hard way. I mean, I guess one of the biggest compliments I ever got was the guy's thought that I was prior service because by going through a military academy and then just by nature, my personality, um, you know, I was a little, I guess I was a little bit more uh, uh, not just sociable, but open minded, I suppose, as far as I'm leaning on my NCOs and asking questions, but also asserting myself and not just saying I was a lieutenant. This is my job, you know. But there were definitely times where i had that experience where i'd say something like hey i'm the i'm the, I'm the platoon leader here's what we're doing and the guys were like oh well, he's got another good idea so i definitely learned that a few times i was very lucky though i had some phenomenal phenomenal platoon sergeants um you know kevin engler who's now a sergeant major uh over at fort campbell and then uh, sean O'Dowd, when i went to scouts who I like, just recently retired um, those guys were you know tons of combat experience which is good good dudes who really you, know, you want to talk about the team leader or um, you know, platoon leader, platoon sergeant dynamic. You know, Not only were we good friends, but like we worked really well together. So there's never a question of if we were on the same team. Because if they ever thought I was an LT, I was doing something stupid, they'd pull me aside and be like, hey, sir, maybe, maybe we do it this way. So I definitely learned a couple of good harsh lessons, but I had some really great mentors to kind of guide me in the right direction.
0: Beautiful. Well, you mentioned Ranger School, which is, you know, revered by many. I mean, you know, the... Uh the sleep deprivation and starvation element and all these, these things that you hear about, it, you know, it's ex- extremely challenging school and obviously you've got selection as well. So when you look back, what were the mental and physical attributes of your early life you think that contributed to you being successful in those courses?
1: Um, you know, I think one just you know, my parents always tell me, Once you do something, you don't quit. You know, one of the things that my father always talked about is like you know, I don't care what you choose to do, but once you commit to it, you commit to it. Um, and now he's like, you know, the other part was, if you're going to do it, do it right the first time. So I think just having my parents teach me that from a young age, you know, just the, all, you know, the second part of it, I was kind of a head case growing up. Like I just threw myself headlong at everything I did, uh, you know, at full speed, which didn't serve me well in a lot of ways. Um, as my friends will tell you, you know, got me through it. But I, you know, I would say a lot of times people ask like, what was that single thing that got you through? And, When I was in high school, I worked for a company called Fairview Landscaping, and I had this boss, Scott Stacy, who I actually, interestingly enough, he just called me this week to talk to his son about my military experiences. So talk about full circle. But I remember I was a junior in high school, and um, you know, during the school year, I worked weekends, and I'd been out with buddies the night before. And you know, Scott was a great boss, but he rode your ass. You know, he made you, he let you know if you weren't doing your job. And I came in, probably hungover or whatever from the night before. And uh, we stopped to do something, saying, Hey, Josh, you know, have a cereal real quick. And he's like, Listen, he's like, When you're here, you know, I expect you to come to work ready to work. But he's like, You know, your shoes are untied. You know, you're just dragging. You're kind of just shuffling around. He's like, You know what I think? He's like, I think you're lazy in your personal life. I think you're lazy in your professional life. And if that, doesn't pick, translate over to your work life, like you're not going to be here much longer. But I remember being so offended that he called me lazy. So I was like, I'm not lazy. I bust my ass at things I want to do. You know, I bust my ass here. But what I realized was like, just by showing up hungover that one day, you know, my boss thought that I didn't take that seriously, but also, you know, my academics seriously. And I remember thinking, I was like, Dude, there's no way I will ever let another human being call me lazy again, or think I'm being lazy, or not a hard worker. Cause i was just like so appalled that he would think that you know that's not to say i didn't show up hungover again but i just <laughs> I, you know but i just remember like that was the thing for me and that got me through you know all of my career at norwich but i remember specifically a ranger school you know when i would be sucking you know sleepless humping up you know the mountains over Delonica, Georgia. That his voice would echo. us, like, there's no way any of these guys are going to say I'm not putting out. I may die on this mountain. You know, I may not be the fastest guy. But there's nobody who's ever going to be able to question my work ethic here. And uh, Scott's words are, I, you know, I don't think I don't know if I've told him that or not. Actually, I think I may have once. But like, it's funny you talk about those moments in your life that you remember. And that's one of them.
0: No, yeah, that's brilliant. It resonates so so clearly. I think with a lot of people listening, you know, you have yeah you have the ownership element. Like you know, if you're lying to yourself. So that's the primary thing. But then also being respected by your peers, not by everyone, but the people whose respect you want to earn.
1: Right, exactly. You know, and it, it, it's tough because you don't want to you know put your stock in what other people think. But perception is reality, and the fact is, especially in an environment like Ranger School, where it's an individual school, but it's a team. It's a team event. If you're not putting out guys aren't going to help you so like that that um you know that perception of how you all work that goes a long way because you end up here we do these things called peers which i don't know if you're familiar with those or i know you've talked to other folks who have gone to ranger school but you actually are peering your 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 classmates at ranger school you know on how they performed and then you could have guys who were extremely tactically sound but the dudes who i always you know pink carded or peered at the bottom were the guys who had potential but weren't doing their part you know they were you know, call them Blue Falcons. So I won't swear on the podcast, but
0: <laughs> please do. Were, you yeah, can. <laughs> the
1: the body fuckers, man. Those guys, they they were all in it for themselves.
0: Yeah, so and then if, if I'm understanding right, you know, one of the 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 things that rangers are known about is that you go and, and create, you know, militia within another organization. You're not out there just being another another weapon in the fight, but you're actually a force multiplier. So from that, is that why they're so so um uh, focused on the overall human, the overall ranger, because you have to have the ability to inspire not only other Americans, but maybe people in Africa or, you know, the Middle East or somewhere completely different.
1: Yeah, it's actually uh, the opposite. Uh, so rangers specifically, so if you're looking at Ranger Regiment, which is the, the unit, they are a direct action force. You know, their job is to go in and kick down doors. Uh, they're the premier raid force for the Army ranger school is a tactical school, which you're referencing is what my career was, was as a Green Berger Army Special Forces.
0: Uh, so
1: for, for those of you listeners who haven't um, heard some of the other podcasts with like, you know, Eversman and some of the other SF guys who've come on, you know, the difference is within the Army, we have several special operations units. You know, there's the what everybody knows is Delta Force or CAG, which is the premier, you know, counterterrorism unit for the Army. Um, the Navy's equivalent of SEAL Team 6. I just don't hear about them as much because, you know, they're like required professionals. Um, and by we, they, I should say, you know, you have the Army Rangers, which is what I was just speaking to, which is an incredibly well-funded, well-trained, um, we'll call it infantry unit because that's really what they are. They are just so proficient at those skill sets and then have advanced skills, of course. And those are a lot of just young mediators who, you, who can and do go down, kick down doors and get their gun on. You know, and what I went to was the Ranger School, which to be ranger qualified into serving a ranger regiment are two very different things. And the ranger school is just training people to perform advanced infantry skills under just horrific, well, I use the term horrific because that's what they are uh, horrific conditions. Incredibly cold, incredibly hungry, and incredibly tired. And just getting mentally and emotionally abused the whole time. Uh, but it makes you a better person. So Army Special Forces, which you were just referencing, is what I did. So the Green Berets, our job is to be force multipliers. We go in when you don't want to have an overt, you know, or conventional military action, raise a militia, or, you know, train the local military on how to execute operations, you know, for whatever their end state is, and do it out by through and with them.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. <clears throat> I can see where I'm getting confused too, because I know Tim Kennedy has been on several times now. He always... You know, describes himself as Green Beret Ranger qualified, and that's where I'm getting confused. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I'm a fireman from England. (laughs) Um, Well,
1: that's in skills, right?
0: So, one thing you probably heard me ask this before that I, I really like to ask every single person who's been truly, you know, deployed in in combat, because as the civilians that we are. Um, you know, we get one of two polarizing views, normally the very pro view or the very anti view. Um, and, you know, I want to get the human view. So regardless of the politics that send our men and women to whatever country it is, there seems to be a common denominator where when once you get over there with your own eyes, you see some sort of horrific stuff that then justifies what you're doing regardless of what initiated it. So did you have any kind of, um, I guess, aha moment type event when you were deployed where you realized that amongst these you know normal men and women in iraq and afghanistan wherever it was that there were some some horrendous human beings that needed to be taken care of
1: oh absolutely uh, i mean and i'll be completely frank with you you know politics aside that aha moment for me was on september 11th, 2001 you know um I mean, the moment they crashed and i used they loosely because i know you know i don't want to picture everybody into a into a uh I don't want to define everybody by the actions of a few, but when those men crashed the plane into 9-11, like there was a segment of a, or an ideology that I knew couldn't stand. I personally felt couldn't stand. And I, those were, they were evil, terrible people who I knew, like, the only way to make the world a safer place for everybody, to include people in the Middle East, to include people in Afghanistan, was to eliminate that ideology. You know, um, so that was my aha moment now on the ground. Absolutely. I mean, you saw some things and it wasn't the combat, you know, I'm not a big war story guy, you know, but it's not the combat. It's what you see the enemy do to people who are just civilians. You know, there's a lot of stories and I didn't believe it until I saw it, you know, where you clear a village or you clear an area and there's no people who've been killed, you know, and then all of a sudden the news is reporting, you know, women and children who the U.S killed. And we were on the ground 30 minutes before and there's no bodies there. And you're like, so where did these bodies come from? And that's when we just like, there's they, segment of that population, you know, and I will say within the Taliban, within, you know, the Islamic State, specifically the Khorasan province, the Islamic State, ISKP was the like Afghan segment of what became, what was ISIS and ISIL, you know, where there are no rules and for their beliefs, they will do anything to when with their perceived with, with anything to win their perceived battle. You know I'm kind of stuttering my words here just because trying to find a way to explain this is difficult. but yeah, the, some of the things you saw out of people who you know didn't have a say, you know, if it's a toe to toe gun battle, you're good, but when you start, you know placing innocent people in straight up executing them to say that if somebody else did it thats that's not I- evil ideology. and that's just something that you not only do you not deserve to live, but you don't deserve to have a say in anything.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that's very important that people, you know, see and hear these stories and get these pictures painted in their minds. The same way, conversely, that a majority of these countries are men, women, and children, just like us back in the states, in the UK, in Australia, wherever that just want to get on with it. You know, and, you know, Nazi Germany was the same. Like most people, probably had no idea what was going on under the Nazi flag. You know, they were just trying to get on with their life.
1: Yeah, and I I do want to caveat that because I know I I use the term they and those people uh, fairly loosely, just speaking of the folks who were fighting. But, you know, when they're talking about a specific ideology, like, you know, a lot of guys get hung up on their Muslims. And I will say, like, I became very close with a lot. Of the Afghans and Iraqis we fought alongside. And they're some of the bravest, badass dudes out there. So this isn't like a Muslim versus Western thing. This is a specific section or a specific ideology within that community. You know, I mean, we had dudes from Chechnya coming in to fight us, you know? And so, like, for a lot of people, and they think, oh, like, we're fighting all Muslims, that's that's not what was happening. Um, and I just don't want people to think that that's what it is. It's not Muslims versus the Western world. It's a small segment. You know, it's the true sharia believers that uh that we had some issues with
0: yeah well speaking of that I mean, because that's something i talk about a lot you know you, to me it's shit bags and the rest of the world doesn't matter whether you hail <laughs> under you know muslim christian whatever i mean there's 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 even like buddhists that execute people in certain you know I mean, it's just it's insanity so it's it's creed and power and hate you know versus the rest but we hear you about the that Boston. <laughs> yeah exactly i mean we know some <laughs> so um you know but but because of that like what is it the draw especially places like chechnya these these people from foreign countries to come and fight under that ideology i get it you know the the kind of the the organic process where soldiers from a different country come and inhabit your land and, and it's probably easier to kind of get the locals to join the fight but to to go from a completely different country what is the draw for those fires?
1: yeah i mean sure this is where i put on my uh all my, all my, some of my buddies will say I put on my liberal hat here, or uh, what I like to think is I put on my educated hat. I got my master's in conflict resolution, and like my whole thing, and even actually you know, I put on my green gray hat too. Like understanding the why. What's your why? Why are you willing to come fight me? And you know, at the end of your podcast, you always ask about some books, and there's one I was thinking about, but it's called The Ugly American, and like kind of it's uh, written by God, what the heck's his name? Like William something. That, I don't know. I'll find out. But anyway, he talks about how we project, you know, Western culture projects itself. And it is easy to see how, in some cases, you know, we can alienate ourselves from some smaller countries. But more so, in my experience, is it's very easy to walk into a vulnerable population. It's the same thing as gang culture in the United States, right? You walk in, here's a family, here's some money, and here's something that will make you feel safe and good, right? So for the folks that are coming from places like Chechnya, you know, or we'll use. The um the fight in you know against ISIS in Syria and Iraq you know all those guys were coming to fight the jihad you know there's two types of people there's the true believers which are very easy they're the disenfranchised youth where they bring them into the mosque and they say hey like we're providing a family these folks are attacking your families it's not hard to buy into that you know I mean honestly it's the same way a lot of us myself included bought into you know the American fight for freedom you know I mean we were never. Just my opinion, and a good friend of mine who passed overseas said this. You know, the fight in Afghanistan was not a fight for freedom, it was a fight for security. You know, but we buy into the, the sound bites of freedom. And these guys are buying into sound bites, and they become true believers that if they don't fight the infidel, then we're coming for their women and we're coming for their children. You know, they're easily influenced. The second half of that, and we saw more of this when, you know, what was Al Qaeda directed into the Islamic State. You know, those dudes were straight criminals and they were brilliant because a lot of the ISIS folks, they weren't true believers. They just liked money, they liked power, and they liked women. So the actual ISIS leadership, you know, the folks, the Baghdadis of the world saw that, They're like, hey, we're going to put money in your hand, we're going to give you entire towns to run, and we're going to give you all the women you want, just come fight for us. So those guys, they kind of ran when the, when the fighting got tough. I mean, there's a segment of true believers, but a lot of those folks were just vulnerable and you're going to pay me to be the man? Absolutely. Which is also why they didn't stick around and run when they uh, when they started making a push to take it back.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting to hear from all these different perspectives, because to me, again, you reverse engineer, you follow the money as it were, um, you know, in any of the, I'm not picking on any one religion, but you follow them to someone who's got a lot of power, whether it's, you know, in, in the Vatican or wherever. And again, there are amazing people in all these religions, but there are a few that use that power to whether it's you know prey on the weak, prey on children, you know, whatever it is, but there's there's this small element that seems to gain from the masses you know and and like you said the the money and and the power elements seems to me to be the big thing because I think if you truly believed in a higher power to to that level. Then you'd understand the love, compassion, kindness element, and you wouldn't have this. I, you know, it's okay, you know, Allah, God, Judah, whatever says it's fine for me to go murder a bunch of people. So you know, it just it, to me it smacks against everything that most of these doctrines teach, which is compassion, love, and kindness.
1: Right. Exactly. You create a narrative, and I mean, it's just so easy to influence disenfranch- disenfranchised or marginalized populations. You know, whether it's domestically here. Uh, which we've seen, you know, whether it's internationally, I mean, like you said, right, my father is Jewish and, you know, he got a significant part of his family involved in World War II in various capacities. Um, and like, how hard was it for an entire nation of what is a pretty sophisticated nation to wipe out and, you know, millions of Jews just through narrative alone, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of that, with you, you know, having such a, a background, you know, boots on the ground, also academically, what is your take on what happened in Germany I'm just curious from you know from your perspective
1: um, you know my take is that you had somebody who no matter how evil you know Hitler was he was very good at what he did he was a politician he was an orator and he took the fears of a small few and grew them into you know the fears of an apathetic many if from you know because how how many of the Germans truly hated the Jews. Probably not as many as we think, right? Absolutely. And if, if you look at the interviews of a lot of the world you know, German soldiers from back then, it's the same thing that a lot of our guys say. It's the same thing a lot of I was just following orders. You know? Because when you sit side by side with them, you hear about like the Christmas time thing, you know, the Germans looked just like we did, you know, white, you know, some Americans are blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Yeah, it's the running joke. I got four kids who look like the Area Nation. Joke's on them since they got Jew blood in them. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you can you, you know, they looked you can humanize each other, but it just becomes so easy to disenfranchise folks. And really, apathy. You 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 focus on apathy, which I think is what Hitler did at the end of the day. He got people fired up, and most of the people just became apathetic. It's not me, it's them. You know? And in a lot of ways, you see that. Well, I won't go into the current state of the world right now, but you can see that anywhere.
0: <laughs> no, but I, but I agree. I was gonna, let, let's do that. You know, but again, not taking a side or anything. Again, my my row my common denominator is always what's coming from an element of kindness and compassion. So, let's let's take politics out. Our current issue with COVID, there's no mention of of improving the nation's health. So you're giving lip service to masks and hand sanitizers because of because of you know saving lives but you're not addressing the obesity epidemic so you know again there's complete apathy on the true health of you know what's killing people of all colors and creeds and there's this you know this this little dogfight over this tiny minutia of this one virus that absolutely has taken lives but far less lives and have died of cancer and obesity stroke and all these things that are killing our people every single year
1: Right, right. It's a, it's, a, it's a good talking point. It's a great narrative, for better or worse, right? And people retreat to their narrative. You know, if you are, again, like I'm, my friend, you know, a lot of people know me, laugh at me because they say I'm a fence sitter. I'm like, hey, you're on the left. I see your point. You on the right, I see your point. You know, all my, all my liberal friends think I'm a crazy conservative, you know, who wants his guns and freedom and whatever. And all my friends on the right think I'm some, like, you know, hippy-dippy-loving, you know, leftist. Because I could see,
0: you know, aspects of both sides.
1: <laughs> and all I wanted my gay friends to be able to get married and defend their marijuana crops with guns. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny because Jason Redmond, if you you know you know him, the Navy SEAL, um, in a and a an incredibly you know powerful story of what he went through mentally and physically with his actual service, but the leadership and the humility. But he talks about that fence leadership. You know, he said you want to be at the fence because that way you see both sides of it.
1: Yeah. I mean that's something again not to uh, not to hang my hat on a, on a on a graduate degree here, but when I went to yeah, school when I got out of the army I went to uh, UMass Boston it's the um it's the um excuse me the McCormick School of Global Governance Human Security but a big thing that we focus on my degree is conflict resolution right so we do a lot of mediation negotiation um you know, organizational leadership and dynamics. But a big part of that curriculum is just understanding how to listen actively and passively and not just defend your position. Because how many times, you know, we'll, we'll use politics as an example, unfortunately, you know, especially being in the firehouse. We have firehouse politics, you know, in my current scenario where guys are like, yeah, here's what I think. But no, when they ask you what you think, nobody's actually listening to what you're thinking. They're just trying to figure out how they're going to rebut whatever it is that you said. Right. You know, so being able to actually hear what somebody else is saying, and be like, hey, you actually make a valid point. You know, I may disagree with it, but I can see the value in what you just said.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I love about podcasts. I'm not just talking about me interviewing you, but just as an audience member, listening to Joe Rogan, to Tim Ferriss, to, you know, Andy Stump, whoever, that you don't get to interrupt, you know, so these people have to finish their thought process. And if it's a good interview, you get somewhere, they just walk all over the person, but, um, but, you know, so you have like Joe, for example, had, you know, Dan Crenshaw and Tulsi Gabbard and, and, you know, um Bernie Sanders. And I loved it. And I would listen to Donald Trump. I'd listen to everyone to speak for two hours and actually speak their mind. Because then at the end, you walk away and you go, well, still don't like them. However, at least I understand now where they're coming from. But you're right. We we just are waiting. Even even if it's not a debate trying to... to argue aside just as a nation i think we have a very bad habit of just talking over each other i find myself doing it i see my wife and my son and you know we all have to check each other but yeah you you're immediately thinking about what you want to say next instead of letting that person finish their thought process and actually you know processing that yourself before you come back with something
1: yeah it's funny you say it that way because like to your original question is a lot of times we talk about covid and we'll, we'll say the vulnerable populations which you know a lot of times like you know, statistically, you know, the um, the low-income populations, you know, a lot of the uh, minority neighborhoods, you know, are more statistically impacted by the coronavirus. And nobody's doing what you just did. Go well, why is that? You know, why are there higher rates of obesity in these communities? All they're saying is, they're like, either coronavirus is impacting everybody or, you know, it's because of X reason. And nobody's actually looking at the underlying reason. They're just pumping their, what we discussed earlier, which is the narrative, rather than looking at it because nobody can finish their thought and have a legitimate conversation about why this is happening, a root issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the same with, with the, uh, you know, I'll say the race thing, that's a very poor description because I think 95% of America doesn't hate cops and isn't a racist either, you know, but this, this narrative of, you know, it's either this or this, it's like, no, it's this and this. Poorly trained overworked cops are a liability and you know there are racists in the world, but those are two completely different things. I mean, there might be a perfect storm of one, but I talk I talk about this a lot. If if your sole reason is to join the police service or the or the, the law enforcement profession because you're a racist of some opportunity one day that you might you, you that's the worst plan I've ever heard. Go join the Klan. Go do something where you can be a racist shitbag every single day. But the reality is, with law enforcement is with fire, as you've seen with with EMS is the more you cut, the less you fund, the less you support, the less you train, the worse person you're gonna get, you know? So, and then you take even good people and then you sleep deprive them and and overwork them because you're understaffed, you are creating an environment for them to fail and a split second decision that might end up costing a life that you might not have made that decision when you were in an environment, for example, what you know, what a lot of special forces are, you know, you have the environment to thrive These men and women are put in in a horrendous position where they're set up to fail. So if you succeed, it's despite the environment, not because of the environment.
1: Absolutely. And I think the other part of that conversation is, you know, we can talk about training all day and we can talk about those things. But if you look at what we ask law enforcement to do right now, you know, the biggest issue we have is When these incidents happen, which a lot of them should never have happened to begin with. I think we can all agree with that. You know, why are these incidents happening? And then it's, hey, he pulled him over for X, Y, and Z, you know, or he did this. They weren't doing anything wrong. And you're right. Maybe they weren't. But as a community, as a nation, we focus on crime prevention. That's our big talk. That's always been our talking point. Hey, crime prevention. Only you can prevent crime. And we ask police to prevent crime. In order to prevent a crime, you have to intervene before a crime is committed, right? So, in theory, you know, back to that catch twenty two of now you're interjecting yourself before you know said person, whether criminal or innocent person, has done anything. You know, the police are being, you know, we'll say forced to insert themselves into a situation, which then exacerbate and escalates situations that may not have occurred. Now, sometimes we get that right. Sometimes, and I say we, as a as a uh, as a world, get that right. They get that wrong. But we need to look at what we're asking of our law enforcement and how, you know, as a society, we're creating a lot of these scenarios ourselves. You know, I and mean, then I mean, there are some the systemic issues, you know, within the community. There are, you know, like I said, folks who are calling in suspicious things because they're just because they're assholes and, you know, they, we'll call them the Karens of the world, if you will. You know, and they're putting our, they're putting our law enforcement guys, you know, in impossible positions where they either ignore a call because she has nothing's going on. But they also run the risk of ignoring a call, or you know, not taking it seriously a call, and having something serious happen. So, it's an impossible position for those guys. I feel for them terribly.
0: Yeah. No. And I agree. And I honestly equate it again to what we see in chronic disease medicine. You know, I I don't want to ever be perceived as as talking bad about modern medicine because there's so many elements that are so good. But you and I both know. That chronic disease management just doesn't work because we run codes all the time with people with sackfuls of meds that didn't save them, didn't make them healthier. Um, and that's how I feel that we're at the moment is there's, we need to look at what is causing so much crime. You know, why is, why are the streets so dangerous that our police officers are being murdered? There, you know, there are situations where our civilians are being murdered by mistakes through law enforcement. There's obviously a hu- a much bigger percentage of civilian on civilian murders and crime. Um, you know, and, and one of the big things I've talked about a lot is is the drug policy we have that's creating not just in the U.S., but, but you know, far into South America and other areas, um, you know, this supply and demand where we're allowing the shitbags of the world to have all the power and the medical community has none. So I think we need to take it a step further and reverse engineer it as you would with health and forget about blood pressure meds and start talking about fitness and nutrition. And the same way is don't focus on locking everyone away. But think about why. What is is the underlying reason that people even turn to crime in the first place? And I guarantee you, it's going to be mental health and addiction is at the root of a huge amount.
1: Yeah, absolutely, mental health, addiction. I mean, you can even talk about being a um, you know product of your environment. I say that loosely. I mean, I have a. I grew up in you know I won't use the term affluent uh, neighborhood, but I grew up in one of the more white parts of the city in Boston, and you know, most of my friends came from pretty good households. And, you know, in the 10 years I was gone, we had 10 guys who died of, you know, drug overdoses or other, uh, we'll say nefarious things. Um, you know, like how the hell did that happen versus the statistics in other neighborhoods, you know? So it's like, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be just by where they're from. It could be a matter of, you know, who they're involving themselves with, you know, in, in the lower income and higher you know, drug use communities, like, like you said, it's some of the systemic things of like you 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 create the environments in which you see, you know, which is kind of an oxymoron to what I just said. But I think guys, you know, they bleed over to each other. It's like, how are people making certain decisions in the first place? You know, whether it's addiction, whether it's mental health issues or whether it's just like this is what you know because of what you saw from your family and your friends.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. And then one example I've, I've used a few times and it's it's. It's almost funny, but it's not. Is you think about, you know, back in the day with, with hip hop, and I've always loved, you know, the hip hop genre, but, you know, fuck the police, NWA, and, you know, Cop Killer, which was Ice, Key, Ice uh, excuse me, Ice T's rock band, Body Count. <laughs> yep. They both play police officers on TV and movies and make shitloads of money doing it.
1: Right. So if right. they,
0: again, ideology, if that's truly what you believed, then you've just left that toxic message and you're like, oh, yeah, that was just me pretending. Now I'm going to go play a policeman for a living. You know, so I mean, even when you're surrounded by these people, there's, there's, it's, it's a, it's a fallacy, it's a facade, you know. So to, to like you said, to be able to get to that root level and create an environment for people to start thriving, so that your role models aren't gangbangers and dealers anymore, they're actually barbers and plumbers and carpenters and all the the functioning members of society. Then there's gonna be that ripple effect where eventually, you know, as we've seen in many countries that have been progressive in their policies, it works. So we have to get rid of this arrogance that we think that Norway's policy or, or Portugal's policy isn't going to work here. That we're all human beings. It will work here. You just have to have the balls to actually do it.
1: Yeah. I have a. Um, so my wife, Jess's college roommate, one of my good friends, her husband now, uh, Chris, is an awesome guy. If like you want to talk about Salty Eric, he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. He is actually the commissioner or the superintendent. I think up there in Maine it's a superintendent. Uh, but he is a superintendent of a prison, um, a medium security prison. And what is interesting when you talk to him about his experience there, is, I mean, he's been there for you know probably 15, 20 years now, or maybe not quite that long. But uh, you know, he's like the majority of the guys that are in his prison right now are in prison for stuff that, Any one of us could have gotten bagged for at a younger age. We just either got lucky, the cards fell on our right, you know, we got pulled over by the right cops, whatever it is. He's like most of these dudes are in there for stuff that we did. You know, they just wrong place, wrong time, wrong skin color, wrong environment, whatever it is. They like they got nabbed. And we you know, he's like that's we lock people up for stuff that, you know, a lot of those guys that we all did in some way, shape or form
0: yeah and there are sociopaths in the world that need to be behind bars that's that's the oh, thing again, it's that yeah, middle ground it
1: sure
0: is. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah we i mean there are there's, there's there's crimes that have been committed obviously those people should should never be allowed out, but even then you know there's there should be more of a rehabilitation element, so they're not as dangerous to the guards and the fellow prisoners too you know but mm. but yeah but there's that very large portion, and you're absolutely right. I think anyone who drinks, if they're honest with themselves, can think of a time that if they'd been pulled over and blown. They would have been over the limit, you know. I, I myself was a little shoplifter in my late teens, or I guess mid-teens. You know, had I been caught then, I would have a blip on my record. You know, so yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. This holier than thou bullshit, you know, is is nauseating. And we have to look at people as human, as making mistakes, and then you know don't factor the anomalies in with the masses. Treat the anomalies as they should be treated. You know, the the Ted Bundy's of the world. You're not going to put him on probation and <laughs> let him go run a kindergarten. But, um, you know, the the majority of the people, I think, just need that mentorship. They have to, you know, pay the price of what they did and have their freedom taken away for a while. But while that freedom has been taken away, why not educate them? They will get out. So make them a good person. So when they finally get back, they function well. The same way as we've had a captive audience for six months with COVID. Why the hell haven't we been educating people on on their health during this time? Instead of just scaring the hell out of them with with a deathometer on the news.
1: Yeah, a lot of the, uh, it's funny you mention that. I um, as far as working, I'm going to plead the fifth, of course. But, you know, from my childhood experiences, <laughs> specifically my parents, but or my bosses, I should say, but, um, you know, the restorative justice concept. you know, a lot of people laugh at me, like, there's a lot to be said for that. I worked with a few uh, counselors and a few professionals now when I was doing all, not so much internships, but like, you know, my, um, you know, my practical, my practicums for school. And we sat down and talked to folks who ran these prison, restorative justice prison programs. And these guys are meeting with the victims of the family who they committed a crime against. You know, they're meeting with, you know, various trades folks and learning skills. And like restorative justice works if you have the right people. Again, the sociopaths, the, the nutbags out there. You know, there's certain crimes that, you know, I just don't think are forgivable. Um, you know, anything against you know, children, you know, murder, things like that. But, you know, sh- when it comes to not victimless crimes, but like, you know, we, we I won't pigeonhole it into like one character, but if you look at it and every crime is different and every, every um, you know, reason for committing a crime is different, but like restorative justice is something the country could definitely take a look at. Yeah, I mean, and I'm probably speaking outside my profession here, but, you know, it's something that, that I am interested in and, uh, you know, kind of ties into what we've done in, you know, previous countries. I mean, God, we, you know, when we, did a whole re-education thing with uh, the Germans, didn't
0: we? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Gave them health care, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: uh, now, if, only, if only we can figure that out here.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, I, I, From what I understand, I think it was Roosevelt. Um, I'm getting my history wrong. But I'm almost certain it was. He had a kind of you know, national health system ready for the U.S. And then once he, I think as we passed away, I think, um, they basically scrapped it, you know. So, you know, that's, that's the sad thing is the Japanese and the Germans got it and the Americans didn't. And then the British actually put their own version in in the 70s. But yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things I thought is heartbreaking to me is that I go to a store and there are elderly people working. Now, don't get me wrong. If they just want to work to be around people, completely different subject. But if they're there because they can't afford their health insurance, that is a complete, you know, failure of us to take care of our men and women that have served their whole life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, then transitioning then. So was it um, in the Middle East that you suffered your injury?
1: Uh, Central Asia,
0: Afghanistan. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, the deployment and kind of how you sustained that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, you know, I mean, everybody knows I'm not a big war story guy, but I'll kind of talk to you about like, what that deployment entailed and then sort of the, the, uh, the injury itself. Um, so when I, after I graduated from the Q course in 2013, I was assigned to a third special forces group and I got incredibly lucky. I actually got to the battalion in April. And they were in the workup cycle for uh, a deployment that was going to kick off in the fall of 2013. Um, At the time, I had been assigned as an executive officer to a company, so I was kind of managing the logistics, and I got very lucky. You know, I got lucky, the other guy did not, but they moved out a team leader for whatever reason right before the deployment, and I got plugged in to uh, what became the team I would deploy with multiple times. And it was awesome. I, the team I went with, I couldn't have asked for a better experience. Just a bunch of great guys, you know, a wide variety of personalities, a wide variety of skill sets. I mean, that's the great part about, you know, just Green Berets as a whole is it's not your typical soldier out of high school. These are dudes who have careers previously, you know, or just overall high achievers. They've got a lot of experience in the military. Like some of the dudes, you know, I had an architect on the team. I had, you know some division one athletes on the team we had a guy who was a uh, nurse previously um you know in the unit like it's just guys from all over the place you know we had a I have a buddy who's actually working on wall street just making you know i won't say millions but damn near close to it and then just one day hated just decided he hated his life and was like i'm going to go be green Beret. like give up all that money and just do that you know so, when you get to that level, it's just all true believers will say. Or not true believers, just motivated individuals who want to do something special. Um, so, I was lucky enough, we deployed in 2013 14 to uh, northeast Afghanistan and did seven months there. Um, it was a pretty kinetic seven months. We had, I think, we lost seven guys in the battalion, across the battalion. Um, luckily, nobody on my team. Um, you know, Unfortunately, we lost a few of our partner force. But, you know, it was a district stability. We were building capacity out in the region. Um, Basically, at that time, the Islamic State in Khorasan province was really taken off. So we were, you know, fighting against, you know, the Haqqani network, but at the same time, starting to try and, you know, mitigate the uh, ISIS presence in Nagar, which, you know, after we left in 2016, had really taken off. Um, You know, came back from that trip, you know, a lot of us... We came back very healthy for the most part. Um, you know, a lot of us had some uh, TBIs that I don't think we addressed at the time, myself included, just because it was such a kinetic trip that there was a lot of blast injuries that occurred. You know, and you just kept going. Like unless a guy said something, you just kept going. So none of us really sought medical treatment on that trip for the various you know wounds. Um, I had some uh, you know some small uh, shrapnel uh, that I had in the finger um, that I you know went. And, Banged myself up on that trip, but everything went well. Uh, came home in I think it was April and May. The team, that, luckily, we were a young team, so we got to stay together. The majority of us deployed to Central Asia um, for a, what was a CNT at the time for a few months, um, training the um, Kazakh uh, special uh, special police. Uh, and then we came back from that. I want to say in October, November timeframe, and then we were all back in Afghanistan in March of well the team was back in Afghanistan in March of twenty fifteen and I met them uh first week of April of twenty fifteen because my wife had uh, our second child. So yeah, it was an interesting several months of like deployment, come home, say hi to my wife. Somehow she got pregnant, don't know how that happened. (laughs) I left while pregnant. Weird, right? (laughs) Um came back for so let she got pregnant. When we got back from in April of 2014, went to Kazakhstan, came back, she had the baby, and I went right back to Afghanistan. So it was a, it was a, it was a crazy couple, uh, couple years, I guess. Um, but that last deployment to Afghanistan was interesting because it was sort of that transition time where nobody knew what was going to happen. You know, the Islamic State was still sort of active. Uh, but they were fighting the Taliban and we are sort of letting the Taliban slug it out with the, you know, with ISIS and then just going in and cleaning up the mess. Um, it's great watching bad guys kill each other. It was the enemy of my is my friend, you know. Now, what was the uh, reason they were fighting? Uh, territory. So the Taliban, you know, I mean, I think what people forget is that, yes, we, 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 we compare the Taliban to terrorists, which in a lot of ways, the way they fought they were, but that was the government of Afghanistan. Like that was the, I won't say the people's government. But the Taliban was the official government of Afghanistan for a long time. And they're just trying to retake power. You know, the means in which they do that is through, you know, unconventional tactics and terrorist actions because they don't have the means to stand toe to toe, you know, conventionally. Um, and they're very good in the gunfight. I can't take that credit away from them. Those some of those guys, especially in northeast Afghanistan, like in Nangarhar and Konar, they want us they'll go toe to toe with us as long as they can until we bring in the big guns. Um, so the Taliban did not like having the Islamic State in, one, because the Islamic State was a bunch of foreign fighters, you know, who were paying to play, but two, I think just like Al-Qaeda in Iraq was to a lot of the Iraqi um, the, the Iraqi insurgents, you know, ISIS was just that much, they were there, even, even the Taliban were like, whoa, 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 you guys are a bit too brutal for what we're trying to accomplish here, you know, like we don't want to terrorize our population, we just want to own it. You know, I won't even say govern because you don't govern Afghanistan. You just control it. Um, So, yeah, the Islamic State and the Aqani Network slash the Taliban, they kind of were, you know, going, trying to figure out who was top dog there. Um, And it was was touch and go for a while. I mean, my last trip, I got back from that last trip. um, I was banged up in July and then August of 2015. That's when I was, matter fact, home. Um, And when I got back, you know, through 2016, they were just slugging it out. Um, you know, sort of slowing down there now, but yeah, it's interesting watching those guys try and figure out who top dog is while we just stand by and let them do their thing,
0: yeah. Which again screams money and power, doesn't it? If there was a true right. ideology, they'd be you know, holding hands and picking flowers together,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I would say the Taliban were probably the closest thing to like believe in their own bullshit, for lack of a better term, because the ISIS guys, the leadership believed it, but they just paid to bring people in, like you said, so um. But yeah, as far as the deployments themselves, you know, the first trip in 1314, you know, that was the truly kinetic one. That's where we were building capacity, going out with the commandos in our Afghan Special Forces counterparts. One, to sort of you know target the high-level leadership, but two, to help them kind of flex their skills and show the communities that, hey, like, we can do this. And we were building capacity with them through the Afghan local police. That was called, at the time, it was a district stability platform. You know, we elevated, it used to be village stability platforms, which, you know, SF teams would go out, live in a village and sort of just focus on building the security and economy of that specific village. You know, and by securing that village through level of trust and helping them develop their own local police, you know, the theory was we it from becoming a safe haven for, you know, the, uh, we'll say the enemy, whether it was, you know, the Taliban, the economy network or whoever, to have a foothold to attack U.S. forces in um you know government uh, african government forces but by the time we got there in 13 14 you know the the big picture we were economizing for so drawing down so odas ended up taking over entire districts so we became responsible for working the entire district versus one specific village which has its own challenges obviously
0: yeah now what about the you know the threat of is it green on blue if i got that right where you know the 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 local militia that you're fighting alongside sometimes turn on you guys?
1: Yeah, that was that was very big when we were there. Um, you know, that's one of the – that was a tough one for us. So that was a huge threat. Uh, Andrew Pearson Keel, uh, he was a third group guy. He was killed – I don't remember what year he was killed. I believe it was right before we got there. And then we had a pretty tough – as a battalion, a very tough winter. So in January, we lost um, Dan Lee was killed in a gunfight. Um, he was on uh, 1-5. And then a couple weeks later, uh, Lonnie Landis was killed. I think it was Lonnie was killed in an RPG attack. And then the next day or two after that, uh, we lost two guys to a... No, I'm sorry. Tico was killed in a green-on-blue attack. One of the Afghan, I believe it was a police officer. He opened up with a machine gun on the entire group as they were in a meeting. So that was a that was a real threat for the entire crew. Um, I think there was like five or six guys who were wounded in that. And just every time you went to the range, like you know, you're working with these guys, you want to trust them, and there was a lot that you did trust, but you also had to be aware that like doesn't matter, man. If they were paid off, if they were true believers who just had been there just taking their time for a while, they were gonna find their moment. So that was I'd say that was probably our biggest threat, you know, because at least in a, at least in a true gunfight with the with the Taliban, like you knew that they were gonna be staring at you, letting you know you're gonna fight. And, uh, you know, the bell would ring and we just started slinging lead versus uh, the buddy hugging you and then putting the pistol in your chest.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, I can't imagine what that must have been like. So what about your injury then? What did you just, excuse me, what did you sustain and when?
1: <clears throat> um, so in July, uh, so July 15th, I uh, went and got myself blowed up um, by a door. And that was shrapnel traumatic and a TBI. You know, the issue at the time was that uh, I did not want to leave the boys, you know, because it wasn't so serious that I thought that I had to, like, I couldn't stay. You know, I just had shrapnel and a few burns. Um, the TBI, I think we downplayed a bit. And then, of course, the very next time I went out, uh, after I was cleared to go up by my medic, um, I had a door that was uh, blown in on my leg, and that basically uh, crushed my foot. And um, at the time, we thought it was just a broken foot, but didn't realize it had, like, essentially just destroyed the bones of my foot. So that was August of 2015, and that's when I got uh back home. And you know that's sort of where things started transitioning for me as far as realizing like, hey this for a myriad of reasons, my wife and I have been talking about what comes next. Um, and the injury sort of was, I won't say a blessing, but it kind of forced our hand, you know because I came off the team because you know I had been lucky enough to take the team on three deployments. And, uh, you know, while I was healing up, you know, I went to be the battalion staff, but I also had to go through a few surgeries on the foot. And then that's where we started seeing residual effects from the traumatic brain injury. Um, and then I had to go probably six months later, spend some time up in Walter Reed so got to kind of work through that and figure out what that was all about. You know, at that time uh, was when the decision was made. All right, let's let's shift this because my wife was like, listen, you know. You are going to be miserable if you're not operational, and uh, I'm only, I can only do this so many times, but I'm okay by phone calls. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like the, next, the next phone call is not coming from you.
0: Yeah, no, brilliant. So, well, you mentioned about the, uh, the TBI, so what were some of the effects? Because you hear so many people now, and you know, the coupling effect, obviously, you see deprivation and TBI is another horrendous you know, pairing, as it were. But what were you seeing manifest from your injury?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because when you think TBI, you think like immediate symptoms, you know, like confusion and all that. And I had the classic TBI symptoms, but we didn't understand what the residuals entailed. So for me, you know, you know, kind of the um, you know, the obvious ones were, you know, things like, you know, it, it was weird because for, we were trying to, we couldn't figure out at the time. I should caveat with this was what were symptoms of TBI or maybe post-traumatic stress versus what were symptoms of the traumatic injuries, you know, and the, the pain meds I was on, you know, and like, you know, because unfortunately, very different. when I got surgery, the arm was like, hey, here's several months worth of painkillers, enjoy, you know. Um, yeah, luckily, I was self-aware enough to know myself where my wife and I were able to control that for the most part. Um, but it took about four months to figure out that it wasn't just post-surgery fog in pain meds you know but like i had trouble remembering the kids names i'd wake up in the morning and wouldn't remember their names um you know i'd go out, i remember the one thing it was like i went for milk or something like that and she was just like "Call me where are you and i was like i'm on the highway i don't know why you know like you just forget stupid things that you know compounded you forget where you were going um you know it got to the point where i started like on my phone taking notes of like you're going to the store you know just dumb things um you know i don't know that i know so my, my wife will definitely tell you probably personality uh, I definitely became a lot more uh, easily, not agitated, because I don't think I was ever an angry person, but uh, I definitely became a lot less uh, fun to be around, we'll say.
0: <laughs> yeah, and again, that just mirrors, you know, my experience, and there's probably a little a little minor level TBI because of all the martial arts I did and getting kicked and punched in the face, but... The sleep deprivation is huge i mean i like one of the the last calls before i retired and this wasn't why but it was definitely a, a red flag was pulling out to the bay to go to call and not knowing if i was supposed to turn left or right in, an, in a first view that i knew very well like i right. literally couldn't function the memory thing absolutely i've a number of times i've driven somewhere and gone autopilot to the completely wrong place so yeah it's it's amazing kurt parsi talks about the parallels and and there's no question tbi and sleep deprivation separately and then again, with your profession, you know, police, that kind of thing, uh, fighters, you know, football players, you add those two together. Now you've got, you know, a, a magnified effect.
1: Right. I mean, that's in a, I, I think you're in on that, especially with the sleep deprivation, because that was something like I probably didn't, it took me about two years to figure out how to sleep again. You know, um, and again, there's a lot of like, was well, that post-traumatic stress or is that traumatic brain injury? And I always would get offended because, you know, the providers like, oh, you just have PTSD. I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I don't feel stressed. I'm not reliving these events. I'm not having these major issues over specific events. Like, this is just a, like, it's becoming a chronic issue. I'm sure there's a level of PTS, you know, because it wasn't a disorder. But they went back, like, actually, it is true. You know, TBI does, in fact, manifest itself, those symptoms, in similar to post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And my wife used to laugh, not laugh, but she's like, oh, like, I can tell you didn't get much sleep last night because you'd be tossing and rolling. And also had to pay you know, sleep meds later and finally get down.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem is the sleep meds, you know, you don't get that quality of sleep either. So what what were the, uh, what were some of the modalities that they used that you found did work then?
1: So I think for me, um, you know, for the sleep specifically, you know, I won't say it was true meditation, but it was just like shut it down and just. Thinking of like trying to target something to think about that wasn't a stressful event for me. You know, like I used to think about walking in the water, uh, fly fishing, because that's like one of the things I enjoy doing. You know, uh, melatonin definitely helped me to get away from using all the Ambien and other, uh, you know, the other heavier drugs they were giving me at the time for the pain. And you know, I think just time, time, and not trying not to stress about it. You know, I went to, so I spent a little bit of time at uh, Walter Reed's called the 70s. It's the neuropsych unit. And it's funny because you show up and they lock the door behind you. You're like, wait a second, am I in the psych (laughs) ward or am I in the neuro? I I was in there for two weeks and my wife had to drive up, I think, the fourth day because I was like, I'm out of here. This is bullshit. Like, I'm not crazy. I'm like, no, no, it's not because you're crazy. It's like some of the patients we have in here are so You know, their symptoms so much further, like if they leave the unit, they'll get lost. You know, they had people who've been in there for a year whose brains were, you know, they were completely jello, you know? So like I was in a much more minor state of, um, you know, having TBI symptoms, but they have to treat you all the same, which I understand. But she had to come up there and like talk me off the ledge, literally and metaphorically because I was like, I'm not staying here. This is ridiculous. Like they take your shoelaces. They take everything, you know, all your pain meds. (laughs) It's just like, this is insane. But um, so they gave me some good tools. But then I also did—it's called the Intrepid Spirit Program, um, or you know the one at Walter reads, NICO, the National uh, National Center, National Intrepid Center of Excellence. You know, it's all brain and um, you know, PTSD skills, and they give you all sorts of brain games, memory tools, just ways to compensate and mitigate some of the issues you might be facing, whether it's PTSD or traumatic brain injury, like my case. And uh, just managing those tools, you know, small things like write down where you're going, you know, have a note so that rather than get frustrated that you forgot something, you can refer to your notepads. You know, that worked well for my memory. Um, you know, some of the other things that we did was just like having a bedtime routine, like sleep, uh, sleep habits or um, sleep routines, which, you know, are things that we cover at O2X, actually, in the O2X curriculum. You know, those are some skills that I got through NICO and 7East that were phenomenal
0: yeah and then doc parsley who obviously is affiliated with you guys as well i mean yep. his stuff is amazing but you mentioned the uh, the melatonin he has a sleep formula that i cannot speak highly enough it's it's a a, a cocktail of a bunch of supplements is all it is but rather than s- snow yourself in melatonin it has this combination so it just initiates the sleep cascade so you're not you know you're not knocking yourself out but my god that stuff works well and all the seals i had that he used to work with they all swore by it as well
1: yeah, yeah, no, I know. I saw that you and I posted about that. And I know a lot of guys they, they talk pretty highly of it, so I, I'm gonna have to try it. So, you know, surprisingly, my sleep is. Uh, I guess maybe it's I'm so exhausted between the firehouse and uh, you know my four kids, but my sleep hasn't been too much of an issue recently. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I want to get to the firehouse. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what what shift work the impact of that. But prior to that, tell me about your journey into O2X.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, I, so the the injury sort of happened. That It was a late October, uh, late 2015, You know, and that's sort of where I was at the battalion level, you know, dealing with the injuries. I was going through the Thor 3 program, which is great because the one thing that I can't speak highly enough within all, I mean, the military as a whole is starting to gear towards this, but specifically special operations. You know, we have, and I know guys have talked to you about this already, the Thor 3 program. You know, the, the, the uh, was it tactical, you know, the tactical human uh yeah, I'm drawing a blank on what Thor 3 stands for now. I guess that TBI moment, we'll call it. But basically it's a rehab for all the Green Berets who get banged up, whether in combat or otherwise. So I had a dedicated strength coach, Lance, who was just awesome. You know, he helped me stay fit while I was doing the surgeries, you know, doing stuff with just one leg. Um, you know, I had my you know PT, Tara, and uh, Teddy, who, you know, basically every day before I went to see Lance, I'd go in with them. they helped me get mobile. They'd do whatever they had to do for, you know, the initial treatment. I'd go work out. I'd come back to them and they would either dry needle, they'd massage, you know, they'd put me in the tub, like all sorts of therapies. They just helped me with my mobility and rehab. You know, I had a dedicated uh, nutritionist, Kate, who was just phenomenal as far as like every day I check in with her. And she's like, All right, are you eating, if nothing else, eat colored fruits to get your antioxidants? You know, and then she was a good gut check for like, All right, how was your weekend? How many beers did you drink, asshole? Because, you know, beers create inflammation. So you had all these people who were there to help you focus on getting healthy again. Um, I mean, they really treat you like pro athletes, which is. You know, which is good because their goal is to get guys back into the fight. Um, and there's some, I mean, you want to talk about humbling experience. I'm in there for, you know, what comparatively feels like a boo-boo. And I got, you know, guys in there, my buddy Jay Green, um, who had a similar injury to mine. He ended up selectively amputating his leg because his his leg, he had it a year before. He's like lifestyle. It just wasn't really worth it. So he took his leg off and he's like, oh, you should take your leg off. You know, obviously it's pretty attached <laughs> to it. Yeah, I was like, I'm not quite there yet. But seeing guys like him and Colonel Pakel and uh, Nick Lavery, all these amputees just killing it in the gym, you're like, all right, like I can work harder here. That's um,
0: amazing.
1: Oh, it's, I mean, you want to talk about it. number one, there's nothing more impressive than some motivated green beret, you know, Green Berets. Uh, but then just trying to watch these guys. I mean these are dudes who you know, not only earned their green berets and went to combat, but they are so dedicated to the task in their profession. That they're losing limbs and all they're doing is fighting tooth and nail to get back to the teams you know i mean nick's a good example uh he you know he lost his leg and he got damn near close to the hip i guess and now he's a warrant officer fifth group you know he's deployed several times since really yeah it's pretty it's a pretty impressive story he's done um they've done a couple of things on him you know on you know local boston stuff um it's a pretty impressive story i'll send you a link on it later it's, it's impressive what he's accomplished you know, Colonel kind of like McKell's another one. But um, so, you know, to, to finish out that thought, though, was, you know, my wife and I sort of had, at that point decided that, you know, my son was three years old and he had experienced essentially three deployments by the time he turned three. That kid's got, you know, more combat experience than most, you know, <laughs> most guys with 10 year careers, I guess. Um, and the moment that we knew it was over was, uh, you know, we always used to tell him dad was going to work when we deployed to try and put in perspective. And when I was going to base, it was always the office. And I think right when I got cleared to like kind of get out of the house and get back to to it, you know, I said, "Oh, Dad's got to go to work." He's like, "Oh, man!" He's like, "You're going away again? Does that mean I have to visit you in the hospital?" And we're like, "We can't do this again. This is a bit much." So um, yeah, that's when the decision was officially made to pull the plug, and we got out, and uh, you know, we got out. We went back to Boston. Uh, obviously, to our earlier conversation, it started our life together, so it wasn't such a concern that I'd fall into my own ways because I was now a respectable father of two. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so when we got out, I was in graduate school at the time, and a friend of mine, Aiden Walsh, you know, we were in this thing called the Collegiate Warrior Athlete Initiative, which is a really cool program. Basically, they take you know wounded vets, and I use that word, loosely because you know not a, it may not have been traumatic wounds to some of those guys you know just dudes are having a tough time in transition and they paired them up with college athletes and basically you get them working out together and then they do classes on a lot of what we cover, similar classes to what we covered o 2x and somebody we got to talk and I saw the same experience and my buddy was just like dude dude, you got to meet these guys o 2x um, you know like one they're all seals you're a green beret you know they're looking for guys, you know, with similar backgrounds, but to like, you, know, you fit right in with this company. And I knew nothing about it two weeks at the time, and so I said sure. And uh, Eamon Burke, who I think you've met a time or two, or at least spoken with, Eamon's one of the primary BD guys. I got connected with him, and then from there they were like, hey, we'd love you to, we'd love you to come in. So not knowing much about what the company was, of course, you know, I never say no. I'll never say no to a conversation. I walked in, kind of kind of talk about them, you know, I'd say they interviewed me, but I'd like to think, you know, that I also kind of interviewed them to see what this was all about. It's like, wait a second, you're going to pay me to work with all the types of people that I just lost access to at Thor, you know, (laughs) so I'm going to have access to all these high performing specialists and I'm going to be paid for it. Like, let's do this. Um, You know, and the rest is history. I mean, just what, what the company offered, I was sold from the get go.
0: Yeah. Well, when we met down in Broward County, didn't we, when you guys were, were there um, and, you know, obviously I was, I was extremely impressed of, of, uh, you know, what you brought to the table. But going back to THORA for a second, um, the acronym, I've just Googled it. I don't know it by heart, but is a uh, tactical human optimization, rapid rehabilitation and reconditioning. But I think it's a very important thing to kind of underline before we move on is I've talked about this a lot, um, by interviewing people like you and SEALs and, and Delta operators and, you know, Air Force, um, SF and, yeah, or these these men and women are trained extremely well they equipped extremely well when they're injured they have you know job specific rehabilitation and the goal is to obviously get them back you know fighting again unless they choose or or unable to continue and then they transition a different way but what is so sad to me is police and fire are viewed in a completely different bracket and but the operators of the world will say no we hold you guys to the same level as us expecting you're protecting our family while we're out fighting we want you to be the best versions of yourselves so I wish that the police and fire communities could understand that we are tactical athletes and we should have strength and conditioning and nutrition and you know a a, a rehab uh, that actually understands a tactical um, athlete The, the last two I rehab, excuse me the last two rehabilitations I did was here in Ocala and everyone else in the gym was like a 78 year old hip fracture you know, recovery. So, you know, I had to basically invent my own rehab and teach these therapists, you know, this is what I need to be able to do. Um, So, you know, what's your, having now entered the fire service, we'll get to into a second, but what's your perception of first responders being held, trained, and then, um, you know, uh, supported in the same way that the the Green Berets that you work with were?
1: Yeah, I, I want to answer this. Carefully, just by nature of, you know, I'm still working um, in the department, but I think it's how we look at injuries, you know, in special forces specifically, you have a bunch of incredibly trained people, you know, who are highly motivated, not that firefighters aren't. But their only goal in life is that these are guys who are already killing themselves in the gym. They're incredibly fit. They're incredibly, you know, motivated to get back to the team. And they, we live and breathe by these families, we'll call them. You know, like, as a team, you're a family. We do holidays together. You do all these things. So when you get hurt, you know, it's not like, oh, I got hurt. I'm going to go. It's like, oh, fuck, I just let my guys down. You know? Like, all I could think about, when my daughter was born and the team deployed, I was very excited with my daughter. But you lost my wife, like, I was very, I was itching to get to Afghanistan. Because I knew my daughter was in safe hands with my wife, and I knew my wife was in safe hands with the community around us, and the guys' wives from the team. But the boys were in combat, and I wanted to get there. So there's that semblance of, like, for me, just how much the, the nucleus of the relationship at the team level for special forces uh, is a little bit different than the fire career in the fire service. But I think that the big thing is when we look at a firefighter or a first responder, and I've learned this more through 2X than anything else, is that when guys get hurt, we look at them as hurt. We don't look at them as you know guys who need to come back to the job like hey we're gonna put you out injured and you are gonna heal you know we're not looking at it and this is not my department specific this is across the country we put guys out and we say hey you're out of work to get better not we're gonna help you get back as quickly as we can you know in some of the departments they're a little bit more um, we'll say progressive like I know it was a Metro fire in Denver one of our uh, physical therapists Ken, he works for them like he's a full-time physical therapist on staff when guys get hurt, like the Thor program, they go to him. You know, not too many departments that I've worked with up and down the East Coast and, you know, even out in Texas have that. So I think just the mindset of when a guy gets hurt, you know, instead of saying, hey, go home, till you are better, you know, it, we need to look at it. Your place of duty is at whatever physical therapy program, which, of course, if you have it on site, you can monitor the guys and help them a little bit more like the Thor program. Like there would be nothing better then if I go out here to be able to go into headquarters and have a team on staff to help me get healthy. But I'm also not naive. You know, I haven't been a firefighter for long, but I also understand that there's a lot of give and take that goes with that as far as like, you know, labor management negotiations and, you know, expectations and, you know, um, you know, say work rights and work environment stuff. So it's a complex discussion there. Um, that, you know, I think as the younger guys who were in the military, you know, as the fire service continues to progress, you know, professionally, socially, and health-wise, you know, we'll start to see more of that. Because I see now, guys like from my generation, you know, the guys who started their fire careers in the 30s, because they did multiple years in the military or other careers first, you know, they're less inclined to go out injured because they want to continue to be able to do things like go to physical therapy. Which, if you're uninjured, sometimes you run the risk of being told, like, hey, if you're out hurt, why are you doing these active things? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. So, it's,
1: it's a give and take.
0: So, well, obviously, you're based in the Boston area. The yeah, Boston FD specifically was, um, you know, one of the, the first success stories, I guess, of, of O2X. So, kind of tell the people listening you know what what o two x is and then and then the Boston story specifically, so I think it's a very powerful one, especially with the the financial element of the savings of implementing a program like that
1: yep so before i'm gonna i'm gonna caveat real quick to say that. Once I became on Boston Fire, I have no affiliation between the Boston Fire and O2X relationship just for just to clear the air of any preconceptions that I'm doing both together. Absolutely. <laughs> for, for ethics laws reasons. So if anybody from the city is listening, I am not doing anything BFD related with O2X. Um, that said, prior to joining Boston Fire, you know, the relationship started uh, 2015 or 14, I suppose. We'd um, have to ask the founders specifically on that. But basically, they went in and said, hey, like, you know you guys have a lot of firefighters out here's what we as seals you know we're doing to maintain our force you know here's something we think has worked you know and bfd had addressed that we got this issue we have a lot of guys going out with cardiac issues we've got a lot of guys going out you know due to cancer and just you know how do we mitigate this because you can't prevent it you know in the fire service you can't prevent you know things like cancer because we go into highly carcinogenic environments, but you can mitigate them to the best of our abilities, you know, Um, know, and you can definitely prevent cardiac disease in a lot of ways, you know, so they went in and said, hey, like, here's the problems you face. Here's what we think a good solution would be, you know, through education. And uh, BFD said, essentially, yeah, like we've got a big enough issue here that I think it's worth exploring. And it took off from there, you know, the buy-in was huge. I think that they've gotten the majority of the department through at BFD. And from there, it's taken off. We work with Quincy Fire. We work with Denim Fire. I mean, we work with almost every, you know, department within, you know, probably 15 mile radius of the city. You know, and like, I've done workshops to every, in every state up and down the East Coast because people saw that model and realized that this, there, there's, a, there's a gap in the need, you know, to focus on, you know, injury prevention, cardiac health, you know, cancer prevention, uh, things like that.
0: Yeah. When you touched on, you know, preventable, I mean, nothing is completely preventable, especially with, with cancer, because there's obviously those, the, the exposure to carcinogens as the, you know, the genetic abnormalities that are clearly present in some people, you know, especially pediatric. Um, but then you have the, the, the physical resilience that you foster through exercise, through nutrition, through, you know, a work week that allows adequate rest and recovery and sleep. Then that, that will far minimize the chances of, of, um, you know of those those kind of disease processes from taking off what is your um your work week in boston Are you with 42 because you're northeast
1: yeah so we do uh 24 on 48 on 24 on uh was it whatever four days off is, is that 96? 96 96 yeah. yeah
0: okay beautiful so and so was that surprising when you started going south that you had departments that were doing 48 56 hour work weeks
1: Yeah, so it's funny. I actually, by working through O2X first, um, I was learning more about fire schedules than when I got to BFD. And so I had no concept of, uh, let's say what right looks like, but I do remember thinking, I was like, you know, I had friends on BFD at the time, but I hadn't been given much thought to becoming a firefighter at that point. Um, But just hearing the different schedules, like the, uh, you know, was it down south, you guys do uh, one and three with a Kelly day? I think it is
0: um no no normally it's 24 48 um no Kelly day is is very present and then and then 24 48 with a Kelly day could be every three weeks could be every six weeks so you know you're looking at you know 48 52 56 is usually the the spectrum down here
1: yeah yeah so that's that's i guess i meant like a three-day cycle but i remember that was like mind-boggling to me i'm like because by the time these guys are getting out of their 24s they're barely recovering before they're back into work you know and then the departments that do the um the day-night tours, um, like some departments in the Northeast have done that I've seen, you know, it's just like, what right looks like was hard for me to understand, but I can tell you what wrong looked like, and I was like, that just doesn't look right. <laughs> the quality of life just looks terrible.
0: Yeah, but it also gives you a view into, you know, you, you think about a lot of industries, airlines, shipping, whatever it is, and, you know, the military, you you have this this professional standard across the board, and when you get into the fire service and, and law enforcement and, you know, and EMS, you realize well, it's just – they're making it up as they go along. Now, the Northeast, thank goodness, found themselves in a very good work week because I think because of initially the, the split shifts that then ended up becoming merged. But yeah, the, the 56 and then the, the federal firefighters, are 72-hour work weeks, knowing what you know and I know about you know the, the, the sleep element of, of overall wellness, you know it's no wonder that we have the cancer and heart disease and obesity in the fire service because we're setting our men and women up for failure.
1: Yeah, I mean, who's going to take care of themselves? Who's going to do those things that you need to do when you're coming off at 24, especially if you're in a house that runs heavily? You know, you're going to come home, you're going to sleep all day. And then obviously, nighttime is not really conducive. You know, most of us are pretty solar-powered, myself included. So once the sun goes down, I'm sitting down and trying to get comfortable. You know, the idea that guys are going to go on these reverse cycles would be effective. You know, it's just kind of non-existent.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. It's something that I'm hoping that one day we can get enough people educated to, to start asking those questions you know, and push in the industry.
1: Who is in the fire service? You know, you know, the only thing they hate more than change is the way things are, but this is how we've always done it.
0: Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll get them angry enough, angry and educated. That's my goal with this podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you're, you're on your way there.
0: (laughs) All right. Well then walk me through the decision to join the fire service.
1: Yeah. uh, So I worked with O2X for a couple of years and you know, it was it's funny because I, I loved working full time at O2X, and to be quite honest, if my wife hadn't gotten pregnant with the twins, I probably would have stayed there. Um, so I think, gosh, early twenty seventeen, uh, so I looked at her, and somehow she got pregnant again. It just kept happening. I don't know how. <laughs> but, uh, this time it was twins, and before that, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, take the to civil service test um, for the fire department." I took it, but I didn't give it much credence because I thought I was too old to get on BFD. But I was like, hey, maybe, you know, if all else fails, maybe I'll go to another department. Um, not really, again, not giving it much thought because I was extremely happy. I, I was still wrapping up grad school. I was extremely happy with where I was at O2X. And then the civil service list came out and people started texting me and said, hey, man, like you know, you're going to have a job at Boston Fire. Because uh, I've tested high enough on civil service. BFD, unlike with GSM Florida, like we're civil service. So, you know, it's the, it's a test, and basically by order of merit list, how you test is how they do hiring. You know, it's a very equitable that It kind of removes the nepotism that, um, you know, I guess some states and cities have historically had. And I tested well, and, you know, basically uh, somebody said, hey, you, you did well on this test, and uh, you're up on the list. And I was like, what list? I want a lot of lists, but usually they're hit lists. So, uh, <laughs> this isn't good for me. Um, but I eventually got a card to uh, come in and you know go through the hiring process and I, you know, I had a little bit of back and forth because I loved the was doing at O2x. but talking to the guys at BFD you know, they're like you're an idiot, you don't do this. And the one thing I, I, I was missing at the time was like you know that team environment, you know that, that little bit of stress. And so between you know being able to continue to serve the community um, you know without having to carry a gun was a big part of it you know because I, 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 I had my fun running and gunning and, you know, it's time to settle on something different. The ability to, you know, be in a team environment in a fairly high performance demanding job um, to give back, but also to have a job that allowed me to dedicate time to the family was a big thing, you know, because the one thing when we left the Army, my wife gave up so much for us, you know, you know, professionally, personally. And the agreement when we went back to Boston was it was her turn. And getting on this job was just the perfect opportunity for me to make up for all that lost time to allow her to continue her schedule without me traveling all the time for O2X. And honestly to be able to focus on everything I wanted to focus on because the schedule happens to be conducive to that. You know, I was around for the twins, you know, was able to be there for the birth. They were actually a month old. I was in the fire Academy, which is, uh, interesting. But, um, you know, just the decision was pretty easy, you know, great job, you know, financially viable, and just let me do all the things in life I wanted to do while still feeling like I was performing a, a valuable service.
0: Yeah, no, I can see. I mean, that, I think that level of service—I've always said that about myself. I—I I don't know. I mean, who—who who knows if I'd actually have to do it to find out? But I don't think you know. I was the cut from the right cloth to be a good soldier. But you know, this is—I guess—the the, the profession that fit me was, you know, the the fire service and the EMS that we do down here too. But you know, you don't have to go and. Join the military to be of service to your country. You can join, you know, police, fire, dispatch, whatever. You know, as long as you're doing something that's actually facilitating, you know, the the safety of the men and women that live here.
1: Right. I mean, that's and the service is defined in so many different ways. You know, that's I think I said earlier in the podcast. Like my parents' thing was like, every, you know, we don't care what you do as long as you do something for your community. You know, like I said, my father, you know, he was a nurse in the prison system, and then like, you know, still got in public health. My mom, I mean, she's kind of Mother Teresa. You know, she was one of the fi- founders of, uh, it's called the Pine Street Inn, which is the only shelter in Boston. You know, but she also founded, you know, the yeah, Roxbury uh, Heart Center, which was, to your point earlier, addressing the uh, obesity and heart, cardiac heart disease epidemic in Roxbury, which is one of the lower-income neighborhoods in Boston. You know, so, like, my parents were very, um, you know, very service-oriented. Uh, I guess their style just skipped a generation because my service is more about you know, dropping bodies of bad guys than saving them at the time. But I switched over since it became an EMT, so.
0: (laughs) There you go. At least you can patch them up now.
1: (laughs) But but yeah, you know, they were saying it didn't matter what service you provided as long as you do something towards the public good. You know, my sister's a nurse, you know, a a pediatric nurse practitioner. My other sister is, you know, a second grade teacher. Like, you know, all of us are in jobs that, yeah, we'll never get rich in, but you know we'll pay the bills and we're doing something for the community around us, which I think is a direct reflection of the type of parents I had.
0: Yeah, which is true wealth anyway.
1: Right, absolutely. I mean, you know, money can't buy everything. It helps. Yeah,
0: yep. absolutely. All right, so then I'm curious to come from such a high level position in the military, and you know, such a uh, high level uh, tactical athlete. What was the academy like for you?
1: <laughs> I like. Lo- <laughs> It was, I, I honestly loved it um, for a myriad of reasons. One, you know, I went from working with Green Berets to working at O2X. So I had an idea of what the fire service was like physically, mentally, etc. cetera. Um, I had never run a fire academy O2X session, but um, I generally knew what to expect. You know, from a physical standpoint, I won't say that it was anything overly difficult I think the mindset for me was what was a little bit different, you know, like at the green beret, like if you're not first, you're last, where in a lot of ways, you know, the fire academy is like finished together, you know, um, you know, my mindset has always been like, you know, leave the week behind and continue on when you're at a selection event so that when you're in real life, you know, you can carry the folks who may be the weak link, but you know, when you're in a training environment, you don't, you know, you only the strong survive because you only want the strongest that are actually at the real event for lack of a better term. Um, So the adjustment there was a little bit different, but it was in a good way. It made me probably a little bit more of a better person, we'll say, you know, because my mindset of like keep up or fall out type of thing was gone. Um, You know, academically, you know, I had just come out of school, so studying wasn't a challenge for me. And, you know, people laugh at this, but I would say the academy was the perfect time for me because my twins were a month old when I started. So from one month to six months, I was in the fire academy, so I knew exactly where I was going to be, when I was going to be home, what my schedule was. There's no, no like, hey, I have to fly out to this place for o 2X or hey, babe, I know the twins are here. I got to deploy. You know, it was, a, it was a consistent environment for me. So for me, it was, I won't say the easiest time of my life, but it was like mentally probably one of the easier things I've ever done just by nature. I knew what was expected of me, when to be where I needed to be and just execute, whether it's through the academy or trying to help my wife's
0: parents <laughs> beautiful well what about probation because again I've, I've been through four so you know obviously you can imagine the latter one or two i was a lot older i had some experience in the fire service um you know and you get you get a lot of people that are great firefighters and you just shut your mouth and you, you learn because they're, they're great teachers, but you get some dipshits as well who have seniority that you have to bite your tongue really hard <laughs> and just wait for your time when you get off probation to speak your mind. So what was that like again, being you know in a leadership position to being back in the, the probie status again?
1: Yeah, so I, I like my probie year one. You know, I spent 10 years in a leadership position in the army. And the thing about leadership is that you, you want to be humble, you want to be transparent, but you also can't look like you don't know what you're doing. You know? So whether I was an infantry platoon leader or when I was briefing you know, the ambassador of Kazakhstan, you know, if you asked me, if, or even you know, the, the general in charge of Afghanistan when we were downrange, like, if I didn't know the answer, I was going to tell you something. And it may not be what you asked me, but damn it, you were going to believe whatever I told you after the fact. You, know, you fake it till you make it and just sound like you know what you're doing. You know, first rule of soft is look cool, second, or don't get lost. Second rule is look cool, you know. Um, you know, he's always looked the part. And so my probation year was the first time in the better part of a decade where if somebody asked me a question, I could actually look at you and be like, I don't know, teach me. You know, it was, I would argue, I won't say the least stressful time of my life because there's different stressors, but it was, it, was, it was refreshing to be able to just strictly be in learning mode. you know. Um I wasn't in charge of anybody. I was in charge of just doing my best, you know, learning my strengths and weaknesses. And there was things that I just wasn't good at, you know, like learning streets. You know, I won't use T B I as an excuse, but like I am not good at learning my streets. So, you know, landmarks, figuring out how to manage that, you know, getting where you go once you start driving, like those are the things that I was probably a little bit weaker on and just finding guys to help me figure that out and learn my routes. Um, you know, the skills. Like it was it I enjoyed my probe year. Uh, you know, to your point about, you know, the uh, seniority thing, you know. I just if I picked and choose, you know, I just picked the guys that I thought would give me the best advice, and you know, hey, teach me. Ask, I'll ask you questions, like mentor me, give me which guy. And if you had no interest in mentoring me and just treat me like a probie, then you know, just put my head down, duck and duck cover, and you know, do my thing.
0: Yeah. See you in five years.
1: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: You know, I mean, here's the thing. You know, everybody can be, you know in charge or senior, but not everybody can be a mentor, um, which we discussed I think, a little bit. And more importantly, like, you know, don't confuse your um, experience, you know, with time as your abilities. I think that's, you know, a lot of guys, not just on the fire department, just across the world, like, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah, but it doesn't mean you're good at it.
0: Yeah. You know? No, exactly. And I, I've seen that, you know, and I, and I always, you know, sort out, the busiest stations, because that's normally where you had the hard charges, you know, and and wanted to learn. I think that was one of the reasons why I never promoted in the fire service. It's partly geographic because I, I would move around from west coast to east coast and back. But I I loved the firefighter seat. There was so much to learn. I didn't want to move forward to the to the front row because you know i I'm not. I don't know everything about ropes and knots and trench and forcible entry and, you know, vertical ventilation and, you know, hose deployments. And I mean, there's so much to learn. So when you see that kind of arrogance, either the three-year guy that's, you know, thinks he's got it all together already, or like you said, a 20-year guy that's watched every Jerry Springer rerun but doesn't even know what's inside his engine, that's, you know, that's such a huge missed opportunity. But that humility and, you know, cop- coupled with, as you mentioned, which is so important – a mentor that actually wants to bring you up—that's the kind of you know relationship you need to seek out and, uh, as a young firefighter.
1: Yeah, and I, I was very lucky. Um, I happened to be appointed to a phenomenal firehouse. Um, so, in our department, we actually have tech rescue companies. So, I was appointed to a tech rescue company, you know, in one of the only towers in the city. You know, so in our division. Nice. So basically, I got anything that. You know, if it's in my division, we go to the fire. If it's a tech rescue call, we go to it. You know, I had the luxury, I mean, I use luxury slash privilege, but, you know, I had the luxury of getting to go to extra training as a tech rescue guy and, you know, as the towers. So I got some additional training. So I just had that many more learning opportunities. And, you know, to, you know, to, to be realistic, there's no better learning chance than being on the job. So go into a busier house or a house that's going to go to fires, which I'm lucky enough to be at. You know, I just got, I feel like I've gotten a lot, you know, a lot more experience than I might have had I gone to a place, you know, that didn't have, uh, have those extra responsibilities or extra skill sets. And to that point, though, you know, and what we're just talking about, like, there really aren't any guys at my firehouse who are those, you know, 20 year couch potatoes because you're not staying at a firehouse like that unless you want to be there, you know. So there's a little bit extra motivation there, um, which is nice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now with the, the TBI and then, um, you know the 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 pts and all that stuff prior i've i've retired now for two years so i've got to sleep in my own bed for two years it's been incredible but even now if i have a, a night or two of shitty sleep i feel myself revert back to you know almost shift status you know when my memory goes and i'm confused and exhausted so yeah you know, there's obviously many more years of recovery for me to get, get over only 14 years of service did you notice any any effects of shift work once you got deep into that
1: No, I mean to be honest, I think that just by nature, where I am in my life with uh, my kids, you know, because I've got you know my oldest son is seven, my daughter's five, and the twins are now two and a half. Like sleep was not exactly a consistent thing, on or out of work. Um, Yeah. So, like the shift work thing actually didn't bother me, and yeah, I think everything's you know from that perspective. Like I don't have a lot of residuals these days. I think everything's been managed over the years. You know, where I've been able to kind of. You know, the, the the residual TBI effects had sort of resolved themselves, you know, we're gosh, was five we're five years out now. Actually more than five years since since all that happened. So I didn't I haven't had too much of an impact on that stuff. And again, I think, you know, even if I had, you know, the big thing is just, you know, I, practicing what I preach when I was teaching the stuff at O2X, like, you know, when I got off shift, take a nap, don't fight through it. You know, just taking those sleep mitigation techniques so that I could get quality sleep when the opportunity arose. So I, I feel like it's not that hasn't been a big issue, um, you know. Obviously, after a rough night, I may not be uh, the most pleasant person when I come home from work in the morning. But I don't care how much sleep you get; that's that's just one of those things. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I think that also speaks volumes because you are on forty-two, and that's that's you know, but well, you're working the shift that I think the whole profession should work. So that is great to hear. You know, you have these kind of precursors. You you're a dad, so you're you're missing sleep at home too. And yet, you, it's still not crushing you. Whereas, you know, the 10, 20 twenty-year guys on the fifty-six or worse, you know, I mean, it just it wrecks them. So that I think that's a great thing to hear that it's that you are finding that schedule giving you enough time to recover.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think the the key to that though is recognizing that you know, staying up for twenty-four hours isn't normal. So if you actually take the time to do the right things, is manageable. Now, there are guys who, you know, just by nature of, you know, like they won't, when the opportunity presents itself to sleep at the firehouse, they don't take that opportunity and then they don't nap. You know, like that's where you see it overtake guys. Like I have friends who are miserable, you know, just because, like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm like, yeah, but how many runs did you have last night? Did you sleep at all? Like, no, I stayed up and watched whatever, you know, show was on. It's like, dude, you had one run. Like, you know, if you could string three hours of sleep at the firehouse, do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. Well, then a, a complete different tangent, but I'm curious with your mom, you know, being so invested in, in the homeless community, um, you know, so you being raised around that altruism. Um, what is your perspective now from the firefighter seat with homelessness? Because with what I saw on my career, these are beautiful, kind-hearted men and women that I served alongside, but there was definitely that kind of compassion fatigue that kicked in. And, you know, I'd hear the word bum all the time. and I fucking hate that word so much, but, you know... The, the, the way that the homeless population were perceived became, as we talked about earlier, you were pigeonholed. You were a, a homeless person, a bum, as opposed to a human being, you know, and, and there was no kind of, uh, uh, understanding that there was a story that got that person to there. They didn't, you know, dream in preschool the one day living under a bridge. So with you having that background with um, being exposed to, to homelessness, you know, what was your, just, just your experience now wearing the uniform, seeing homeless from from a responder's side.
1: Yeah, it's you know I guess it's tough for me because I think just over more so from my military experience, you know, I, I am a little bit apathetic as far as scenarios because sometimes I think just choices get you where you belong. Um, in that specific case, though, so, you know there are there's definitely something to that. You know, my mom and my father were always big on that stuff. Like when I went shopping, I came in the door and there's a homeless guy living at the palace. So i like, oh great. I mean, that never happened. You know, my mother's involvement in punch reading was when I was very young, so I don't have a lot of memory of that, but that was always their thing. Like, hey, like that's still a person. You know, I think on the other side of this, you know, it is hard when you get the repeat calls for the same people, you know, whether it's Narcan, but just that, like you'll see guys, and it's unfortunate, we have one of the shelters right up the street from our firehouse. And, you know, interestingly enough, the guys on my crew, like a lot of us grew up in the area, and like we're seeing kids that we grew up with, you know, and the thing is, like, I know that those kids, a lot of them came from decent homes and they just got hung up, you know, doing, you know, drugs and, you know, just a series of poor decisions. And some of them just fell on hard times. You realize like to your point earlier, like the addiction is what got them there. So like they're not inherently bad people, you know, and sometimes it's hard to forget that, you know, I, I'm just as guilty. I'm like, oh, it's this guy again, you know, but you realize like. When you start actually talking to them, some—I mean, and of course, a lot of the stories I'm sure are just like just that. They're stories, but uh, sometimes you realize like, wow, this guy, like, this guy had a hell of an experience. Like a lot i have talked to a couple of those guys. You realize like they're Vietnam vets, and that's the example we we're talking about before, where they just couldn't catch a break, and you know the PTSD and whatever other experiences got a hold of them, and they just couldn't battle their demons, and that's where they end up. And it's real—it's a real shame because you want programs out there for them, but it's a hard dance to follow because you're like, why can't you help yourself? you know and just you got to remember like you said that they're humans it's like you're torn between two two reactions i guess
0: yeah yeah and exactly i mean there's there's a double-pronged attack that i talk about all the time you know you got the environment and then you got the individual and there has to be ownership and there's some people that you know that are a lost cause. whatever happened you know but again it's 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 getting that dragnet of the of as many people as you can and raising them up and Right now, for example, addiction, you know, say you get arrested, you know, you get a, a criminal record now for being an addict, and now you're out in the streets, you, you can't find any work, you know, you, you it's, it's a vicious cycle that sets them up for failure. And it's not a, a victim, get your violin story, it's just a reality of the way we do it at the moment. So, reinventing, um, you know, looking at that, and, and and as one of my previous guests says, asking not what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you that got you yeah. to this point, reverse engineering that. We're never going to get all of them, but we can get a huge amount of them back, you know, off the streets and, and becoming functioning members of society again.
1: Right. And, and, you know, my lieutenant, when I came on as a pro, that was one of the things that he said. He's like, listen, man, he's like, you know, at the end of the day, these are all people. He's like, I don't care what you think. He's like, you can be annoyed. You can be tired of seeing the same freaking flyer every time. He's like, but when you're on the call, you treat them like people and you're going to get a lot farther. He's like, you can think what you want, but outwardly, you know we are providing a service whether it's a homeless person whether it's a rich affluent person or whether it's just a middle class person like you treat them you know all equally from a um, you know service perspective but that's all really we we are in the business of providing a service regardless of the situation and sometimes it can be hard to remember that yeah as you know <laughs> yeah
0: well my thing is I mean don't get me wrong I've had my fair share of you know frequent flyers I've had you know people that it doesn't matter you know if they're homeless or poor or whatever they're just horrible people <laughs> you know period but my my thing always was for for the other you know 95 percent was what if that moment of kindness and compassion that you show you showed that person was that flicker of light that they needed that they started turning a corner you never know whereas if you show them you're just another cruel person in this world that they're in you're going to send them further down
1: right exactly i mean in Aussie, you see a lot of that not even in the homeless population but folks you know, who have found themselves in, um, you know, old homes, you know, and a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, you you become frequent flyers and you're like, why are you calling me? And you realize that they're calling us just because their families haven't seen them in years or months or whatever. And the best human contact they get is when the firefighters come in and, you know, check them out for their chest pain. And they're really just looking for some you know, basic human interaction.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, I want to transition to some closing questions, but it's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Your, your life story with, with what your parents did as well really adds so many layers to this. Um, the first one I love to ask is there a per, excuse me, is there a person? Let me start that again. The first question I love to ask is, is there a book that you love to recommend It can be related to our discussion today or something completely different?
1: Uh, it's funny. I- you always ask that question, and I mean, obviously, myself included. I got to read your book now because I know that's out. I haven't picked it up yet, but that's <laughs> that, that, that's in the queue. Uh, I think I got three ahead of yours before I get to it. There's no rush. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be remiss uh, to not hook my boy Jason up. Jason Casper was on a while back for anything he wrote. Um, you know, I guess i'd say do you mind if i give like two
0: no books? please and yeah Legend. for every, everyone listening jason casper is is uh you know green beret version of jack Carr. amazing amazing fiction so i highly recommend you look him up
1: nice yeah shout out to jason he's a good dude yeah so oh and i also forgot this one doesn't count but uh humor performance for tactical athletes by uh the o2x crew that's always a book you need to read you Absolutely. Know, page 87 is the best one. but i'd say that a lot <laughs> of people um You know, professionally, a lot of people are always asking about you know the SF, like what it's all about. So I'd say "Chosen Soldier" by Dick Couch. Uh, Basically, that one chronicles you know from start to finish, selection through the Q course to what it becomes, what it takes to become a Green Beret. Um, It answers a lot of questions, and Dick does a good job of actually like looking at what the guys are experiencing, um, you know, as they become Green Berets. So that's a really good one to answer a lot of questions that you know I've gotten. You know, I guess. My favorite old book is going to be Catch Twenty Two uh, by Joseph Heller. Uh, I think most of us probably had to read that in high school. I just like that one because it like takes the insanity of war and you know the human mind like talks about the things we just talked about. Like normal people don't go to war, you know, and uh, the ones that are wise enough to realize it's crazy are the ones that have to stay because they're not crazy. And then uh, I'd say the only other one kind of just fun to read is uh, Zipping My Fly. It's about fly fishing. It's one of my hobbies. You know, that's a good one. It's just a guy's story about traveling the world, trying to find himself and catch fish and drink beer.
0: Beautiful. Now, just as a side note, um, with you coming through the Army specifically, were you exposed to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's work?
1: Uh, yes, yep, uh, on killing, et cetera. Yes. I've read, I've, read, I've read most everything of his.
0: Right. So what was what was your perception of that psychology through your eyes as a soldier?
1: I think he nails it. I mean, here's the thing. Killing people is... In, it's, in, it's inherently human in the sense of like survival, but to convince someone to kill someone that may not be trying to hurt them is not normal. So the dehumanization process is absolutely true. Um, and I've seen guys like, you know, in combat, they're not aiming at what they kill a lot of times. They're just putting down covering fire. You know, I, the, the experience I've had is Green Bray is a little bit different because we're getting a little bit closer. You know, and a lot of times we're like, you know, we're closing with and destroying the enemy in a much different capacity, like surgically um but i think he nails it i think that like we're training you know you're training somebody to do something that's not inherently natural to people i mean i think violence is natural it's not a popular opinion but i think we're as a human like survival the fittest we've gotten away from that you know darwinism was but uh i think he i think he knocks it out of the park in a lot of ways
0: yeah uh, this is his uh parallel with the you know the um the animal kingdom where take dogs for example they don't murder each other they'll they'll get to the point where one submits and then they both walk away one with his head down one with his head high but it's not the you know species murder um element to it it's the same with us which is then so tragic when you see some of these executions of police officers and civilians where i mean you that, that that's a pretty horrific place that person has arrived where they're okay with doing that
1: Right. I mean, that's an absolutist thing, but I think in a lot of ways, that's also like sociopathic, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Total void. Someone who's just completely void of empathy. I mean, at that point, you're not just angry. You're, yeah, there's there's a lot. We can unpack a lot in that
0: one. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well then the same question, uh, movie or documentary and or documentary?
1: Ooh, tough one. I would say, what did we just watch recently? Um, kind of cliche, but I recently watched The Outpost. Um, I hate to give a war movie, but that's just something that they did a great job. I was talking to my dad about that because he actually called me after watching. Like, so that's what, that's what it's like. I mean, obviously, you know, wasn't involved in the cop-keating battle, but they do a very good job of showing the dynamic of uh, soldiers and also kind of what combat's like. And those boys put up a hell of a fight.
0: Is that the one? Is it a Netflix movie? Uh,
1: I don't know if it's Netflix. I think it was once to main screen. It's on Netflix now, though.
0: Okay, yeah. I, I saw it pop up on my screen. I have to look at that then. And then any documentaries?
1: Oh gosh There's a lot of good ones Um, Anything by Honestly it's not so much A documentary But uh, anything by Warren Miller Like I'm a huge ski bum And uh, they have one Coming out about Warren Miller's life Oh let me While we're talking I'm going to Google it Real quick Because it's uh, For anybody who doesn't know Warren Miller He's one of the premier Ski uh, Ski industry Filmmakers And He just nails it As far as the lifestyle And You know What you want to you know the type of anybody. Just get out there. What's he say? He's like, if you don't do it this year, you're just one year older when you do it. And uh, that's his
0: thing. Just get out and live your best life. So, brilliant. Yeah, I
1: don't know what the name it is, but look if you anything by Warren Miller ski movies.
0: Okay, perfect. I'll look it up. If I do find it, I'll put it on the uh, the, clo- the show notes there. All right. Next question: Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Yeah. Gosh, it's so. Uh, so I mean. Honestly, the one thing I think is always interesting is that you always get our perspectives. So, I mean, she'll hate me for saying this, but honestly, like someone like my wife, who just kind of, everything I told you, like being on the other side of it, as far as the recovery and the career decisions, I think uh, she'll probably tell you the truth based off what I told you guys. Um, but just her perspective, like when you hear her, actually, she presented to a, uh, to a couple of college classes on being on the other side of it, not only as a military spouse, but as a mental health provider and as someone who kind of managed these decisions with me. Um, her perspective listening to that was always super interesting so she'd be a good one um but then honestly like anybody on my crew we've got you know this guy sam dylan uh, he we worked together and he was a marine he's actually killed in combat and came back alive if you believe that wow and then somehow just manages to get himself blown off a ladder like you know he just has his story of just getting hurt and always coming back and he's just a hell of a firefighter, but uh, he's just got a really interesting story. I mean, every guy on my crew, my my lieutenant's a Green Beret uh, and firefighter lieutenant. I've got, you know, two combat Marines, one who's like almost a pro boxer. Like everybody's got one who wants a CrossFit gym. We've just got such a dynamic crew. But I'd say Sam Dillon specifically. I mean, how many times do you get to talk to somebody who's dead, who died? (laughs)
0: Yeah, I've had a few, but that's because I have a podcast. (laughs) Touche, touche, all right. (laughs) But uh but uh, brilliant. Well, they both. I mean, they're both. They're both great suggestions. I mean, I'd love to to connect with both. I mean, I think the the spouse, you know, male, female, whatever it is, element is something that is very important. I've had a, I've had a few, but yeah. I mean, you know, that's that. Those are the real heroes. We're out doing what we love, you know. And yes, there's a risk of, of it, and yes, we might die, but our husbands wives whoever's left behind is the single parent the whole time we're gone so and then like you said they're they're constantly in that heightened state of they're going to get a phone call saying that you know that we were killed in action so um yeah very very powerful story i think from the other side
1: yeah absolutely and then also like this the, the little known thought or little thought about part of that though is like just when we do come home they've got to manage that of like I was taking care of the family now the husband's home or as a firefighter like I come home from a shift having a shitty day and you know she's the one who's got to like kind of talk me back and be like hey just here's your responsibilities or hey I know you're hurting physically from an injury like let me help you heal or you know they just take on so many responsibilities that we don't even consider
0: yeah absolutely all right well thank you for that um the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you what do you do to decompress
1: what do i do to decompress well aside when i'm locally in boston you know i work out or just go do stuff with the kids but uh, my things are i either go fly fishing in vermont and when the weather permits i go skiing in killington those are like my two things skiing and fly fishing
0: beautiful all right well then the last question then um if you want to reach out to you um how do they find you on social media and then how do they find o2x
1: yeah, so best bet to get me would probably be by email. You can get me at josh at o 2 xcom Um I'm not my social media account, I generally keep it, you know, just for family and close friends. Um, but as far as O2X, you can get us at O2X Human Performance. Um, you know, if you look up any of our Instagram, Facebook, just uh, at O2X Human Performance, you know, O2X.com will bring you to the website. And then we've also recently launched the app, which you can find in the app store. Um, and that has everything that we have had on our portal recently you know as far as workout programs nutrition programs you know a lot of the resilience and mental health tools um you'll be able to pull off the app as well and if you hit me up at uh, again joshua2x.com i can help you guys kind of figure out how to get that app situated with an account so happy to talk to anybody who's interested in learning more about O2X, uh, or if there's anything you know from our chat here or any questions i can answer feel free to reach out
0: Beautiful. Well, Josh, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, it was, it was, you know, amazing spending a couple of days with you and the guys down there. And I know we've been planning to do this for a long time. Obviously probation was not the right time. (laughs) but um but i mean this is what i love you know you have labels you're you're a ranger you're a green beret you're a firefighter you know but the the human element and the backstory with what your parents did and how that kind of shaped you you know as as a soldier as a fireman or firefighter um you know is 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 so powerful to hear so thank you so much for taking two hours to uh to tell your story today
1: yeah thanks for having me jim was fun uh yeah sorry it took me so long to get to do this with you